So, you've all been waiting for the JFK section. Let's bring in Randy Benson. Hey, Randy, whereabouts are you? Hey, um, I am in Durham, North Carolina. Oh, well, huge thank you for coming on and spending time with us. Ash informed me that you spent 14 years making this bloody film about the assassination (laughs) of JFK. What, What first got you interested in that subject? Well, um, I've always been a history buff, and uh, what really interested me was the researchers and why people would would research a topic that was decades old, and who were these people? And so that's what started me on the journey of of making the film about the research community. And which way do you lean then? Do you lean to more towards Jim Mars, that kind of viewpoint, or more towards the official narrative? Oh, I definitely, <laughs> after spending so much time, um, it's very clear that the, that the researchers have uncovered, you know, thir- they uncovered 13 million pages of, classified documents through the JFK Records Act. And I think that um, to believe the official narrative, the Warren Commission narrative is a bit naive. Um, You know, the last official government, US government proclamation was that there was a conspiracy. So um, that's kind of where we are now until the rest of the documents are released and we can hopefully get a, a much broader perspective of what happened in 63 and throughout the Kennedy presidency. So well, yeah, you... I, I lean more towards um, Penn Jones and John Judge and the other characters in my film. I'm absolutely with you there, Randy. And I'm going to ask the viewers, put a one in the chat if you think the official narrative was absolute BS on JFK's assassination, put a two in the chat. If you believe everything the Warren Commission said and you love the official narrative, (laughs) I know which way that's going to go. So let's, let's break it down then. What are the biggest holes in the official narrative? I mean, how could this guy with this lame gun that barely cost anything, that couldn't even shoot straight, how could he have performed this massive crime of the century? Right. Well, you know, he's what my the researchers I've studied revealed and what the documents have revealed was that um, he was indeed a patsy. Um, there was a, a huge push against any critics of the Warren report that CIA document 1035-960 that Robert Groden um, revealed. Um, And it's very clear, you know, there's so many points to this, but the fact that Oswald was seen on the second floor immediately following the assassination by Officer Marion Baker you know, reveals that he was not on the sixth floor. 
So it's as simple as that. And and the work of Cyril Wecht, who was who's in my film, the forensic pathology work that he he's done on the assassination reveals that there's no way the magic bullet could have made all the wounds. I mean, there's you... more metal in Connolly's leg while he's sitting in a grave right now than is missing from CE 399. Do you subscribe to the triangulation theory then? Because the video that shows him, it appears that bullets are coming from various directions. I, I do. Um, and again, that's based on other researchers' work, um, the work of Tink Thompson, Josiah Thompson, um, Penn Jones, John Judge, uh, Mark Lane. So, yes, I do. And do you think that those hitmen then were just cleared out, of, you know, got clear out of the scene? I read one theory that Barry Seal, the pilot who was involved with the CIA drug drops, was involved in picking one of the hitmen up. Do you, do you know anything about the logistics of the hitmen? I do not. I do not. But, um, you know, there are rumors um, that uh, E. Howard Hunt was, you know, from Watergate fame um was the carrier to the safe house um of payment to the hitman and uh that was confirmed by um um marita lorenz in testimony um to a court so you know these are things that that deserve a lot more research um you know i have uh an interesting story to tell about my dad, if I may. Please. My my dad was in the fighter interceptor squadron at Han Air Base in Germany during the assassination. And he was on the front, front line of the Cold War. And so during those years, um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, fighter interceptors would fly the east-west German border you know, Soviet MIG on this side and American plane on this side, and they would fly the east-west German border. And my dad would always say, if, if a Russian did anything, he would be scrambled because that was the front line of the Cold War. But my father on the day of the assassination wasn't scrambled and found out about the assassination while he was at dinner uh, at the officers club. Someone came in and said something. And so that always, that always gave him pause, great pause, because the fact that, you know, he was scrambled when the, the assassination attempt on De Gaulle, for instance, and, um, Whenever anything in the world would happen, he was always in the air. But at that time, they weren't scrambled. And he knew, he just knew something was up. And so maybe that's what piqued, really piqued my interest in the, in the case, to get back to your first question. 
so we know about you know the massive amount of people that were executed, uh, went missing, assassinated, surrounding the JFK mm. assassination. But I, I don't know what happened to the researchers. So what did happen to the researchers then? What what kind of stories you got there? Oh gosh. Um... Well, we know from CIA documents that were released under the JFK Records Act that they were being watched um, all the way up until the 1990s. We have documents saying that were, you know, memos that were sent back to the CIA that that researchers were being watched. Um, I even I have a really interesting. Um, event that happened to me about a year ago um yeah so i was at my local library branch giving a talk on the assassination just what i call jfk 101 just the basics and um there were two men in the back in suits out of looking out of place and afterwards they came to me and said, we're from the National Archives and we drove down to North Carolina um, from DC for your talk. And I was like, why would you drive from DC for a little JFK talk? And they just said, we found it very interesting. They gave me their card. They were from the Office of General Counsel. And then they drove back to DC. And so that as why would they possibly care about someone like me giving a talk at a my local library branch? But there they were. I, I have the card in my wallet just just as a little re- reminder. That's scary. Of these isn't things. It? Yeah. Have you heard of any any researchers suffering violence or getting killed themselves? Well, there's there's speculation that May Brussel was was taken out um she there was a lot of evidence that she was being watched and surveilled from a house across the street and uh she she died under mysterious circumstances um she died immediately and there was no autopsy and um and that was it. So that's just one of many. I know that researchers like Sylvia Marr, early researchers, first generation researchers, were constantly threatened, um, constantly under surveillance. And even the second generation researchers like John Judge and Walt Brown have been um, surveilled and and uh, watched closely. So... How do you define first and second generation researchers? Well, the first generation researchers were the ones who started on the day of the assassination. So, um, you know, Jim Mars, Robert Groden, uh, Penn Jones, of course, um, Mary Farrell, Sylvia Marr, Josiah Thompson, um, Mark Lane, of course, and uh, um, Vince Salandria, for instance. Um, and there are a host that, 
that I'm not naming right now. But but yes, it's uh, and the second generation researchers were those that were mentees of the first generation. So researchers like the star of my film, the main central character of my film is John Judge. And he was a mentee of Penn Jones um, from Midlothian, Texas. So he, you know, he's considered second generation. And he picked up where Penn left off and focused. He got out of Dealey Plaza early and focused on the whys of the of why Kennedy was killed. And that led him to focus on the Pentagon and the Joint Chiefs. So there's been there's been so much speculation about why he has been killed, and you know Cuba military industrial complex, oil interests, taxes being raised on oil owners, um, the CIA threatening to decimate them into a million pieces, or whatever his famous quote was. From doing all your research, then over all of these years, what is your take? on why he was assassinated well all of the things you just listed of course um but what we know from just the documents um national security action memo 263 was signed in october of 63 which was the withdrawal order from vietnam and uh, the first thousand officers or first thousand soldiers were removed um, before Christmas of 63 um, or in November of 63. And the full withdrawal was ordered by the end of 65. Kennedy was killed on the 22nd November and um, in one of LBJ's first meetings, he signed National Security Action Memo 273, which reversed 263, ordered an escalation of covert action, and was basically the Vietnam War. So I think, you know, my my gut and what I see from the documents is that the biggest reason was Vietnam. And there were a host of other reasons. The, like you said, the um, the the oil issue, um, him standing with the steel workers over the steel uh, mill owners, um, his policy towards the third world and anti-colonialism was another massive nail in his coffin. And then, of course, the peace speech that he gave in June of 63 at American University, which was an outreach to the Soviet Union for detente. And that was very threatening to um, the Pentagon and the Joint Chiefs and, and the Cold Warriors out there. So I think those are, you know, we can... We can speculate, but we can also look at documents. And I think the documents are the, you know, one of the best ways that we can understand what happened in 63. Um, 
Yeah, we we started out this broadcast interviewing Julian Assange's wife, and we believe that he has, you know, because he was exposing the military-industrial complex, that he suffered that the price he's suffering. But that is obviously, if you look at it in terms of economics and money, that is the biggest entity, isn't it? The most money is made from war, so that would be the primary one of the primary reasons in this case. Now. Earlier this year, I interviewed Michael Francis of the Colombo crime family, and his dad had inside information on the mafia's role or interest in the assassination. And he told me that, you know, if you go look at the history of the Kennedys, the bootlegging, they had mafia connections, Mm -hmm. and they used that money and those connections to gain political power. But then when Robert became the um, lawyer that he said he was going to smash up the mafia. So it was as if he'd turned on them after they helped him get into that position. Do you believe that there is a world where intelligence agencies and the mafia coexist to perform these assassinations? And that what I just said, what Michael Francis said, did indeed play a role in the assassination? Uh, in short answer, yes, a hundred percent. Um, you know, what, again, what we know from the documents about Operation Mongoose, for instance, is that that was a, a joint CIA mafia FBI assassination program to get Castro. And it's, it's, it's not a, far-fetched idea to just assume that that was turned inward um, and the mob would be in perfect position in a perfect position to bring in um, assassins that couldn't be traced to any U.S. based intelligence organization they could um, arrange safe houses they could arrange ways to get people in and out so it's it's highly likely, in my opinion, and from what other researchers have determined, was that the that the mob was heavily involved. Um, but in the end, there were things that there were things that happened that the mob couldn't pull off, um, like stand down orders of of. Uh, um, military personnel and, you know, my father's story about not being scrambled, um, and the log books, I mean, the, um, the code books being pulled from long range bombers the day of the, uh, assassination. So, um, the mob was heavily involved, but they couldn't do it all. Yeah, I love that answer. That was great. Going back to the researchers, then I'm a huge fan of Jim Mars. I've got some of his books on my shelves behind me. Mm-hmm. So you said that there was these citizen researchers were responsible for 13 million pages of documents. So what's the current status of the documents? Well, um, under the JFK Records Act, all of the documents were due to be released. Um, in late October 2017. 
And that was by congressional order 25 years after the JFK Records Act was signed. And they were, the documents were due to be released completely unredacted, no blackouts at all. And only the, there's a stipulation that only the sitting president could delay the release. And so the, you know, however one might feel about Donald Trump, most researchers believed that he would not hold up the release of the final batch of documents. But he indeed did and kicked the can down the road to um, Joe Biden. And Joe Biden kicked the can down the road even longer. So we have to wait until... Um, um, I believe, yeah, I'm unclear about when the next date is, but, you know, it's, we're still waiting on, on the, the most important CIA volumes. There are five volumes that, that we're waiting on from the CIA documents and approximately 52,000 pages are remaining to be released. Um, and, you know, oddly enough, not oddly enough, um, it's, it's uh, the, the Secret Service upon, um, when the Assassination Records Review Board was convened, the, they were given access to all records. The Secret Service destroyed all of their records pertaining to the assassination before the review board could get their hands on them. And that's noted in the review board's final report, but they decided not to make a big stink about it in the early days of their investigation. So there, there we are. We're, we're still waiting on documents that are 59 years old to be released. And of course, that begs the question, if it was a lone nut, a lone communist sympathizer who wanted fame and had no other connections, why would the documents still be withheld after 59 years? What was the it's, role of the Cold War in this? Oh, I think everything. I think everything. Um, when Kennedy came into office, of course, he was considered a cold warrior. Um, you know, he had served in World War II, and uh, he brought on a lot of cold warriors into his administration. Um, but he changed after after the Bay of Pigs, and then after the Cuban Missile Crisis as well as the death of his of his son Patrick he had a massive shift and he changed and he wanted to end the cold war and as you said earlier war is the most profitable thing in our society in any society and um and Kennedy was dedicated to ending the cold war and so I think, you know, you've alluded to it, but I think that this, that was the 
main reason that he was killed, that he wanted to end the Cold War. He, um, I don't know if you've read the letters between Khrushchev and Kennedy, but there's a whole canon of literature that's in the Kennedy Presidential Library that you can get online and check out and read for yourself. And and this it's this back and forth of beautiful letters of them talking about peace and how do we do that and the pressures that they were facing, they were both facing at home from hardliners and people who wanted war, um, people who didn't trust the other side, who would never trust the other side. But those two men did. They trusted each other, and they were both committed to ending the Cold War. And so not long after Kennedy was assassinated, Khrushchev was you know, run out of office and went into exile um, and was, you know, basically emasculated and politically. So we had Tim Tate on last year. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's written extensively about Saran Saran and Kennedy's brother getting assassinated. And he's, he's a very eloquent speaker. And he convinced us that Saran Saran couldn't possibly have fired all of those bullets do, do you, have you researched that assassination as well? A little bit, yeah. And, you know, of all the major political assassinations of the 60s, um, that is probably the most clear cut that Sirhan Sirhan could not have fired the fatal shots um, that killed Robert Kennedy. You know, the autopsy report by Noguchi um, stated that the shots were fired um, at point-blank range behind him, from behind. And Sirhan was never, what, closer than three feet in front of him. So, and Kennedy was only hit by two bullets, and they were both fired from behind. No bullets hit him from the front where Sirhan was. Sirhan certainly fired fired a weapon that day. He he hit um, you know a, a few people and fired into the ceiling and into the walls. But of all the assassinations, that's the most clear cut, just from the autopsy report. So you're in the process of creating the searches part two. I so am. What, which areas are you going to dive deeper into? Well, um, one area is the notion that critics or counter critics to the Warren report or critics to the researchers say that someone would have talked over all these years. And so a large portion of my film will be about all the people that did talk. And there were hundreds of people who did talk, but no one listened. They went to the Washington Post and to the New York Times and to the FBI and to the Chicago Tribune, and no one talked. And they then go to the Rolling Stone and even periodicals like Playboy and Penthouse just to be able to tell their story, but no one listened. And so... That's going to be a, a huge part of my film. 
and interviewing researchers that I wasn't able to interview for part one. Um, that's I can't wait key. to see part one now after speaking to you. Where, where can we watch part one? Well, if you go to my website, um, thesearchersfilm.com, um, there's links to where you can watch it and also purchase old school DVDs um, for those of those listeners who might still have <laughs> DVD players. But, and, um, and, and for the viewers then who've watched you this evening, where can they support you and follow you online? Oh, yeah, at the film site, thesearchersfilm.com. All right, Randy, really appreciate you spending time with us today. And we wish you all the best in part two. You take care, my friend. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow, I've got to grab part one now watch it i can't i'm endlessly fascinated by this jfk stuff it is because it's a mystery i think just the ongoing interest it never ends does it it's like who killed e we don't know exactly what went down in that jail in new york that night and it creates never-ending interest um of a, a, a marilyn monroe's death things like that as well all kinds of conspiracies princess diana these are the definitely the big ones so in the description box, Randy's links will be down there. Support him, check out his stuff, watch the doc. And let's look forward to part two. And just in time is Andrew Gold. I'm going to hand it over to him now. Be back in 25. I've started saluting quite a lot recently, and I don't know if that's actually, it might be an offensive symbol or something. So, so do let me know, people, if it is. I don't want to be, you know, or something. Uh, Aphrodite, how are you doing? Good, Andrew. How are you? I am very well, thanks. That's a lot. You've probably heard this before, but it's a lot of pressure to begin life with with a name like that. Yes, it's been a whole you know journey for me my whole life. I'm born with the name, named after my grandmother, half Greek, half oh. English. So there you have it. It's oh, real. Well, that's beautiful. As as is as is Aphrodite. As you know, that's the the whole point of Aphrodite, isn't it? <laughs> so tell us a bit about. Um, we're going to be talking about Michael Jackson today. And you are one of the prominent with you, you wrote a book called Conspiracy, Michael Jackson Conspiracy. Michael Jackson Conspiracy, the name of the book? Yes, it is. Good. Yes. Yes. And and I think I thought anyway, that most people the consensus is now that Michael Jackson was a, a we've got to be careful what words we use on, on Sean's stream, but a, a you know, that he was involved with, with children. And uh, you you posit that that is not the case. What I posit is that the trial against Michael Jackson, Jackson in 2005 was a sham. Mm -hmm. That the media, you know, today we talk about media and covering things up and, you know, um, having an agenda and it's more out there in the world, right? Because of social media. Back at the time when that trial happened in 2005, there was no Facebook, there was no anything really that people used. And so the media, 2,200 credential journalists decided to only report those things that were alleged in court and did not report the cross-examination of those allegations by anyone because it wasn't suited to them. So you had two trials happening at the same time. You had a real trial in the courtroom and then you had a trial by media outside the courtroom. 
And mm -hmm. nobody ever rectified that, which is what my book is about. Interesting. Um, I've just been told that my microphone is, is crackling. Can you hear that? Is it crackling a bit? Um, I don't hear that. I hear perfect. Okay, maybe. Oh, but I've just got someone else saying that. I'm going to quickly click refresh. I'll be back in, in three seconds. Um, okay. Here we go. Um, okay. Well, hopefully it's better now. If not, I don't know what to do. Um, okay. So, so that it was, and, and here's the thing. That's not good. We know that those things happen. We know that that you know trial by media it, it happens. But if you're, I presume you're also suggesting that maybe he didn't do those things because otherwise, why is it important to you? Why it's important to me is because Martin Bashir is the ah. person who made his name off of Princess Diana and later off of Michael Jackson. So why it's important to me is that this trial would never have happened if not for Martin Bashir's documentary. Martin Bashir was the first witness to take the stand. Martin Bashir's documentary was the first thing we saw in court for two and a half hours. And so Tom Snedden used that documentary to go after that family, to get a family of grifters to go after Jackson. And now, what do we find with Martin Bashir? 25 years after the Diana interview, suddenly yeah. the BBC is apologizing and paying, uh, you know, damages to people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's, he's lost all credibility, Martin Bashir, I think, in, in the UK and, and worldwide, I'd say. Um, and, and you're right, that, that documentary was, in, was insane. But what, what particular issues do, do you take with that Martin Bashir documentary? Okay, so Martin Bashir coaxed Diana, right, by fr now we know, by setting up fake bank accounts and claiming that she was being spied upon by her inner circle, right? Yeah. But most people around the world don't necessarily know that. You in the UK know it as a fact. Now, Bashir used that same tactic on Michael Jackson. And the underhanded way in which he handled Jackson actually... Uh, made Jackson decide to do this interview, to do this and let him be followed around for months on end without any pay, without any contract, without anything. Because Michael Jackson was obsessed with royalty. Michael Jackson wanted to be in the same, uh, you know, aura of Princess Diana. And he trusted this man. Bashir was there for one thing only. And that was to figure out how he could turn the tables on Michael Jackson. And he did that in a few ways. He did that by, first of all, having the quote, luck of being there when Michael held the baby out blanket to see the fans in Germany, right? So he was able to utilize that fully. And we see that Michael is saying, you know, I just wanted them to see the baby. I wasn't trying to dangle the baby and hurt the baby. We see that in the film. But the truth is, Martin Bashir is using it step by step. If you look at the outtake footage, which is no longer available to people, but that I have a copy of, um, you will see that he's the incy-wincy spider going after Jackson bit by bit off camera. And the reason there's only off camera footage is because that was the one thing Jackson did to, to protect himself. He took 
his own videographer and a separate video of the entirety of it, including all the outtakes, all the breaks, whatever else. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if you realize that. No, didn't know that. Okay. So when you look at the entirety of this, which again, was never shown on ITV, was never seen by the public, you will, you will know that Michael Jackson did nothing but talk about his kids, talk about, um, you know, his, his, uh, work with children around the world. And the whole idea behind this, Andrew, was for Martin Bashir to help Michael Jackson create a children's day. Okay. Now, who wants that? Who would think of that, right? But the truth is, Michael Jackson was still a child, right? So in his mind, he didn't have a childhood and he wanted to create an international children's holiday. And he talked about how children uh, around the world aren't celebrated. Children around the world don't have a specific day dedicated to them. There's a Mother's Day. There's a Father's Day. There's no Children's Day. And he talked about how difficult it was and how afraid he was of his father and how he had no childhood because his mother was a Jehovah's Witness. I don't know right. if you're familiar with that. Are you? No, I, I knew that I knew the father was uh, quite abusive with the kids. Okay, so here's the thing. Michael Jackson, because his mother was a Jehovah's Witness, they are not allowed to celebrate holidays. They are not allowed to celebrate birthdays. So there's no Christmas. There's no birthday. There's no Easter. There's no nothing, no Thanksgiving. So all his life, and he talks about it in the outtake footage, how he was deprived of any sense of childhood because of the religion of his mother and then his father working him from the age of five years old on stage. All of that's in that in the outtake footage of that documentary, Andrew, and we never saw it. Nobody mm, ever I mean, saw it. You raise a really interesting point and it is that moral thing of, you know, how much do we judge people for who they are and how much do we say, hey, that person who went on to do bad things, you know, there were mitigating factors. Uh, and it appears there were many with Michael Jackson, an extremely complex person who probably had a lot of very good in him and also might have been psychologically, you know, ruined to an extent by his uh, terrible upbringing. Um, but isn't it also the job of a documentary maker to to expose this, particularly when he was getting people's kids around to his house uh, to sleep the night? Well, here's the thing. Martin Bashir orchestrated that sleeping in the bed together moment in the documentary that went around the world, okay, and, and created this cr- criminal trial against Jackson. He is the person who suggested to Michael, let's bring up one of the kids that you helped with their sickness. Let's bring up one of those kids to Neverland so that we can show how you have really helped children. Now, understandably, this is Michael Jackson's attempt for damage control. We know that, okay? It's not as though this is Michael Jackson in a, in a you know, a fog. No, he knows that this is, Bashir's gonna help him turn his life around as he claimed that he turned Diana's life around. Okay. And so Jackson wants to stop the rumors. Jackson wants to show that he helps children. And Bashir says, you know what? Let's bring one of the kids that you helped up to Neverland. The kid they chose, Gavin Arvizo, was brought to Neverland. And at the time he was brought there, at the time of the documentary, we see photos of this kid in a wheelchair 
with no hair on his head because he was in chemotherapy treatments. Okay. Yeah. So surely Michael Jackson is not sexually molesting a child while he's making a documentary that's damage control. Okay. A child that's in a wheelchair and has no hair on their head because they're so sickly. Right. Well, we don't we don't know. We don't. I mean, but but maybe not. Maybe not. I'd like to believe that he, he didn't in that precise moment. But there are so many allegations and so many times that he was behaving inappropriately, I suppose. And uh, he, whether whether he actually molested people or not, you know, sleeping in beds with children, apparently that wasn't the only time. And unless unless I mean, you know, more than I do, unless it was. No, it was not. I get that. Okay. okay, we have the whole Jordy Chandler settlement. There's a whole stream of things behind why Tom Steddon went after Jackson in that particular case. But what I am saying to you is this case, and no, we do know. I'll tell you what, we do know that Michael Jackson didn't molest this kid when he was there with a bald head in a wheelchair because that's not what the kid alleges. What right. the kid alleges is that he was molested after the Bashir documentary aired when they were trying to do further damage control because Bashir suggested they both sit on the bed together and hold hands. So we see all of that in the film. And, and here, here's the thing. The reason I wrote this book and now is now out on audio tape for the first time is to show people what media slant and bias can do. It's not to totally acquit Michael Jackson. I, I can't speak for everything that anybody's rumored about Michael Jackson. No one can. But what I can tell you is witness after witness for the defense came forward, for the prosecution rather, came forward to say that they were, quote, molested or touched really by Michael Jackson. There was no allegation in that time about there was actual, you know, penetration, nothing, nothing, nothing. And they were all skewered by Tom Mesereau on cross-examination. But what did the media do? They only reported allegations and never reported the other side. And I'll give you an example. Jason Francia, one of the prosecution's witnesses, who it was allowed to bring in prior bad acts, okay, in this trial, which is another ruling of the judge, very slanted against Jackson. On come two or three different young, now young men were boys to say that they were allegedly molested. Jason Francia gets on the stand and says, Michael touched him outside of his genes. And because of that, you ready? He had to go through years of psychotherapy because he was so traumatized by that. Not out, no clothes, a clothed, okay, a clothed kid. That's his statement. And there were many others who, you know, testified during that trial, the people who worked for Jackson, the people who are disgruntled employees, who alleged all these things that you're you're talking about, okay? Who, it turns out, when the cross-examination, they sold their stories to the tabloids, they stole things from Michael Jackson, they were mm. actually um, pressed charges against Jackson, tried to sue him, and the judge ruled in favor of Jackson against these disgruntled employees. So, you know, I think there needs to be some separation of fact, fiction, and rumor. Yeah. And, and I think there needs to be more focus on how media can truly slant before a trial, and we know trial by media, but can truly slant any hope of reality when it comes to a superstar, 
And then of course it's now filtered down to everyone and anyone who happens to have a tweet or happens to make a comment on Facebook, you know? Yeah. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. And and I, you know, look, I respect what you're doing because journalists need to be doing this work. You need to look at every aspect of this side of things. And I I don't think you know, it, it is an innocent or proven guilty kind of thing. At the same time, what we've got to weigh that up with is that it is very, very difficult to prove um, sexual misconduct and those kinds of things, isn't it? I mean, no one's in the room with with them. So under cross-examination, you know, you could well fail to prove beyond reasonable doubt uh, what he did or didn't do. So that's where, you know, the amount of time, it's, it's not unreasonable to presume. And I wouldn't lock someone up under you know, presumption, you know, this is presumption, as you say, and it's rumor. And But it's not unreasonable for us to presume that the kind of person who it was touching a boy outside of his genes also touched other boys inside of their genes, and especially if he was sleeping in beds with them. It's easy to make that leap. And I, yeah. I'm not in the bed to, 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 to confirm or deny any of it. But I will say this. At the trial, the only time that Michael Jackson was actually tried for this when you say it's difficult to prove or disprove, the, the kid, the accuser, Gavin Arvizo, took the stand and couldn't remember how many times he was, quote, molested. Changed the story numerous times about his involvement with Michael Jackson. Hmm. At the same time, his brother took the stand as a separate witness to allege that he saw two acts of molestation on by the accuser, that he witnessed it. Now, do you really think, and the jury certainly didn't think, that Michael Jackson is molesting a kid who is has no hair on his head, is sickly, coming out of a wheelchair in front of the brother? I don't know. Maybe. No. No, no, People no, no. do quite evil things. I mean, you just said that he had such a bad childhood that he was basically a child. So either he knew right or wrong, or he didn't. And if he didn't, which is, I think, the supposition that we are both under, then he may well have done something like that. I am not saying Michael Jackson was a child. Michael Jackson had children at the time. Michael Jackson was not a child. Okay? What I am saying is that those witnesses and that particular trial were absolutely impeached on the stand, told three different stories about what happened and when, mm. impeached themselves within the trial, and turned out to be people who, witnesses you've never heard about. Chris Tucker testified that this same family were grifters and after him for money. George Lopez testified that this same family were grifters and went after them for money under the guise of Gavin needed cancer treatments and blood blood transfusions, okay? Jay Leno testified that this family were grifters, that he didn't trust to help them with the Make-A-Wish Foundation that he works with. Hmm. It was not just, okay, witnesses yeah. who were uh, part of Neverland or claimed they saw things or the family of accusers. This was a trial that was a equivalent to a lynching of Michael Jackson. And when it was all said and done, Andrew, and he was acquitted, and people realized that the reason he was acquitted is the jury did not believe and could not believe various accounts that didn't make sense or add up of grifters who had a history of going after not just stars, 
but also after the J.C. Penney Corporation for, quote, sexual abuse. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. It's in the book. All right. No. Which, OK, the mother alleged that she was sexually molested at the department store parking lot of the J.C. Penney department store here in the States in L.A. And mm. her sons testified to that. All right. Prior to the allegations against Jackson, years prior, they had taken acting lessons. We learned that at the trial. And she got a $125,000 settlement out of that department store because of it. The whole thing trumped up. So mm. what I'm telling you is that the media in this case, and that's what I'm focused on in my book, right? Completely distorted all of the facts to lead people to believe that Michael Jackson was truly guilty and that this jury was starstruck, okay? When in fact they were there, those who covered it, for the entirety of the trial and saw the other side, never reported it. And when it was all said and done, ah, we're not interested in this story anymore. In fact, nobody- What about the two two guys after he, he died? What about that documentary, Finding Neverland? Okay, so I haven't seen it. I've seen part of it. It's very mm -hmm. disturbing from what I've seen. Okay, but I have a question. Why did Wade Robson decide to be the very first witness for the defense? Why? If he, in fact, was molested, okay, many years prior. Now, we know people who are molested, kids who are molested, are wary and don't want to, you know, are embarrassed, and there's a whole psychological trauma that goes along with it, no question. But why would he anxiously get on that stand? Why would he, with fervor, get on that stand to say nothing happened? Uh, that's a question I have because, you know, he then sued the, uh, you know, the estate looking for monies, you know, and that suit was dismissed by a judge just a year ago, along with the suit by Jimmy Safechuck, which was the other young man in the Leaving Neverland documentary. Now, now the cases were dismissed because you can't hold the estate responsible for alleged actions of Michael Jackson. And but my question is. If they were so hell-bent on letting people know that they were molested, again, why did this young man, Wade Robson, get up and testify with fervor? Hmm. Well, I mean, you answered it yourself, didn't you? We know that people under duress do these kinds of things in court. We know that people, I think, uh, often plead guilty, for example, when they're not, and vice versa, of course. We know that it must be very difficult to be molested by a, a superstar, your idol. You don't want to get him in trouble when you're when you're a child. There's all sorts of reasons you might do that. You could even say, but you know, you could even say that that is evidence to his honesty. The fact that, well, not his honesty, but the fact that he didn't. It's a testament to how much he didn't want to get Michael Jackson in trouble. The, the initial uh, denial, you know. I suppose, and and that's that sounds all well and good. But remember, he was not a child when he testified. It was many years later. He was an adult, and he mm. took the stand, and he swore in front of God and everyone else to tell the truth. So again, you know, mm -hmm. if he's so traumatized. If he's all he wants to do is protect Michael Jackson, um, okay, perhaps. But to get on the stand with fervor and to say mm. what he said, as did Macaulay Culkin, as did others who testified that they were never touched by Michael Jackson, okay, it just it. I'm sorry, but it doesn't wash. 
What's your opinion? What do you think of Michael Jackson? I, I know you, you, you know, you don't want to. It's speculation, isn't it? But what do you think he did in, around that area? You know, Michael Jackson. Around the area of the allegations of molestation, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying not to say the buzzwords that will get Sean's channel kicked off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, in my opinion, right, mm. Michael Jackson was somewhere stuck in puberty. That's what I think of Michael Jackson. I think he never got out of puberty, even though he was a man and he had children. And I think that his desire to have kids around in that age range who were in the bed, not in the bed, at, 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 on his amusement rides, whatever it was, had to do with as much of not having a childhood and being stuck in a time warp than anything else. And when you think of Michael Jackson and you realize he did not have friends, he did not have his family were using him all throughout the rest of his life because he was the breadwinner. He was the star. Okay. He had no one he could trust. He, he really, you know, his, his whole joy in life was being on the stage. Other than that, it was being around kids. Now, can I say absolutely that I know he didn't do something to Jordy Chandler? I don't know. I don't know. But Juden Chandler took the stand and argued that nothing happened to her son. Okay. Mm -hmm. Another witness that nobody heard about when the trial was there in the courtroom and a different trial was being reported by media. You're, you're in a, I suppose, a, a tricky situation. And, and I think I think that's good. I think that's where journalists should be, uh, where you might be defending somebody and you know this you might be defending somebody who's done atrocious awful awful things but you also point out problems with media bias and there may well as you say have been problems with the court cases and things like that and those those need to be pointed out that's that's not how uh, justice works so I'm, I'm pleased you bring those up but it, it must be difficult for you to put yourself on that in that position where you're effectively defending someone that you know might have done these awful awful things have you gotten since writing the book have you gotten uh, what sort of reaction have you gotten well obviously michael jackson's fans around the world are are happy about the book because it shows a different side of this entirety trial mm -hmm. okay that it was a sham and it was um, people who are not Michael Jackson fans, including the publishing world, don't want to know anything about this book. Hang on, everyone's a Michael Jackson fan. Mm, no, they're not. Not people. His music. He's, yeah, but not people who think he's an evil, sinister person who did these evil, unspeakable things to children, right? But his music, his music's still amazing. It reminds me of the Woody Allen thing because his movies are so amazing as well, and you know, and that's another one we could have a debate about all day because you know a lot of people believe what he's innocent as well which he may may well be you know yeah i mean and you know look i was at the bill cosby trial as well okay mm. and in that case you saw witness after witness i saw young women now young women who had been you know girls who mm -hmm. were drugged and woke up realizing that they had been touched molested fooled with whatever the case may be and the jury believed it because who was testifying was very credible what i'm saying to you is the kids who testified in this trial of michael jackson were not credible 
Okay. Mm. And so I've had experience with this at with other celebrities, such as Bill Cosby. I had experience with it with, I don't know if you're familiar with Jerry Sandusky from um, Penn State, the football coach. Yes, yes. Who went on trial for sexual molestation. I was at that trial in Pennsylvania. And again, there were the witnesses who testified had letters between themselves and Sandusky, basically calling them my boyfriend and you know, very sexual, loving comments that were made in letters that were appeared, comments, statements that appeared that were graphic. Never once did anyone ever say Michael Jackson penetrated them. Never once did anyone say that Michael Jackson, you know, full on was in a sexual relationship with them. We don't but know do you that. do you think do you think he did? Come on, let, let's. I want to get to the the bottom of this. What you really think? I know you said he's in, he hasn't got he's stuck in puberty, and the, which, by the way, is is a theory, a, a quite a common theory about you know, people who go for children that they are themselves stuck in childhood. So, what yeah. do you what's what do you really think? I really think that Michael Jackson has been misjudged by the media, and I really think that people need to take a second look. That's all. Do you think he ever molested a child? I don't know. Which, what do you lean towards? <laughs> yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, there's a confirmation bias to an extent. You've written this book, so you, you lean, and a lot of I have to lean that way as well because I want to continue enjoying his music. So well, it's hard. It is hard, and I will say this. In the past, when I've done some interviews about Michael Jackson, and I have said, point blank, I can't answer for anybody else other than this kid for which he was on trial, okay? Mm -hmm. And that is true. I can't. But I have had a lot of backlash when I say that from his fans. And I'm not really in the mood to sit and, and speculate about what Michael Jackson did or did not do or why he paid $20 million to Jordy Chandler. I think it can speak for itself. I don't need to speak to it because I wasn't there. And as I said, I watched June Chandler. I watched her on the stand make a plea for Michael Jackson's innocence. Okay. So all I can tell you is what I saw, what I witnessed. Yeah. And, you know, all I can tell you is that, again, the media, Bashir, who has been totally discredited now in what he did with Princess Diana, and also discredited with Jackson, should take note. Yeah. I think I think you've argued it um, fascinatingly, Aphrodite. Thank you so much for doing so. Where can people get get? Where do you want to send people now? Book and social media. And so stuff? so yeah, my um, website is aphroditejones.com. The book is available on Amazon. You know, everywhere, whether it's a paper copy or whether it's a the ebook and the audiobook. And you know, so I direct people to Amazon or my website. And you know, I think. People need to take a second look. That's all. That's all I'm saying, Andrew. Yeah, really. I appreciate that. That's this is journalism 101, you know, and it's not done enough. And you need to look at both sides. So I appreciate that, Aphrodite. Thank you so much for coming on, and and have a lovely day. You too. Thanks so much, Andrew. Uh, Speaker Aphrodite, we would love to get back to talk about Osby. I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we could do that. You know, I was there. <laughs> you know, Tom Ezra also represented Cosby. That was a big disappointment to me. I have to think about that. I have to think about it. Because, Please think about that. Yeah, I will think about it. You know, he's out <laughs> now. You do know he's out True. now. 
Yeah. Oh, you wow. know, and he, he deserved to go to prison. No, no question in my mind. And I, I thought, based on what I saw by the witnesses, he would be sentenced and found guilty. But now they've sorted it out because the, the prosecution made a deal with him. I, I, I don't know. i got to think about it. Let's ask the viewers. Put a one in the chat if you want Aphrodite to come back to talk about Cosby. Put a two in the chat if you think we need to leave Cosby alone. Oh, he, lo he loves he loves doing this. And, and huge thank you to all the guests this evening, to all the viewers, wherever you are watching this in the world. We are about to wrap it up and go over to Patreon in about 10 minutes. The link for the Patreon is in the description box below this video. Huge thank you to Ash for arranging nine guests for us to interview this evening. Oh, it's mm. a, it looks like it's a unanimous, unanimous one. Oh, there's a two from Charlie there, but mostly ones, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah, they want her back. Well, do. Ash, Ash will sort that no, out. No, pr no pressure, no pressure. You just let Ash know. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. darlings. I will think about that. All right, you All take right. care. Well, Thank you. Yeah. Thank um, you. Bye-bye. You got it. Okay, well, that's fantastic. So, Pedro, tell us a little bit about your background and what you write about. Uh, well, uh, I have no business writing about most things I write about, but uh, my, my background is just... Uh, just journalism. I mean, I just I, I like to take up things that are, I think, kind of taboo and uh, engage with them in um, in a serious way. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really it. I, I, mm. I don't have any kind of like professional or credential background in this stuff, which I think is in some ways it's good um, because I, I, I can come into issues without blinders mm. um, and, and kind of take an outsider perspective to things. So that's really it. Yeah, well, fair enough. Um, and how did you start to get into the culture wars? What I mean, because with a lot of people, there's something that sparked it. With me, yeah. for example, there was as well. So, yeah, what what was it? Uh, man, you said well, you said a little bit about myself. There's there's no there's no easy answer to these questions. Um, I, I I grew up in San Diego, California, so I grew up as a kind of just you know a lib, uh, just someone who just kind of imbibed liberalism as a kind of the ambient stuff and, and the in the environment right and um it was really the election of, of donald trump that made me kind of rethink a lot of things uh i think a, a a flashpoint for me was i realized that there was a kind of convergence in the way that bernie sanders and donald trump were talking about the elites talking about uh the ruling class talking even about issues like immigration they actually at least initially uh, had very similar outlooks on immigration. Um, obviously that changed, but that was really uh, kind of my my moment where I, you know, started, became politically aware of things, started questioning my own beliefs. And um, my movement to the right was, um, it was pushed along actually by engaging with Buchanan era culture war uh, lore, basically, like reading these, because I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And a lot of the things that we're seeing today were actually debated in the 80s and 90s um, at the at the peak of the Buchanan movement. And so, I mean, for a lot of people, they saw Trumpism uh, and, and also similar movements around the world as kind of reminiscent of, of these, these debates that we had and we thought were lost and settled, but obviously they weren't. Uh, they've been revived and, and the fights are as pitched as ever, so. Mm. Is, there, is there room for a 
the center ground C- can you can one criticize both trump and bernie sanders as populists yeah. both you know as you say one of the same or coin two sides of the same coin criticism of populism is different from you don't have to be a centrist to criticize uh populism i think and I, i'm i'm critical of populism in the sense that i don't i don't view populism as viable as as a populism as an end unto itself you're, you're talking about a kind of directionless rolling revolution that is you know basically just exists to uh satisfy popular anger uh but it has no real telos right it has no direction no vision of where it wants to go it's just kind of like rolling thunder um as far as like is it possible to be a centrist i don't think so i um there's a saying that i, I don't know if you've, you've heard it but we you hear it over and over again here in the united states which is that basically the side that wants to be left alone is always going to be defeated and imposed upon by the side that wants to rule and so basically if you're a centrist and your position is i just want to be left alone well it, you don't have to worry about me i'm, I'm on the right i don't have any power it's it's the people with institutional power who are, who are going to force you to use you know little things that are actually in, in some ways like petty tyrannies like pronouns referring to illegal aliens as undocumented Americans uh, you know and and not being able to dissent from consensus on policy like uh, the the nature of the war in Ukraine and whether or not your country should be unflinchingly devoted to pledging support to them you know so um, I don't what's I don't wrong? think it's possible centrism. what what's wrong with um uh saying un, un, undocumented was what was it undocumented immigrants yeah yeah undocumented americans because you're, you're suggesting essentially that that citizenship no longer really matters no longer matters that people come here illegally and do things the right way and actually uh come here for more than just economic reasons right uh to, to take advantage of something it, it when you start to say that people who cross the border are americans mm. then the the essence of being an american essentially evaporates if everyone can be, you know, X, Y, Z nationality, then there, that nationality ceases to exist. And you're ultimately just talking about countries as kind of economic zones as like open air flea markets. And and why is that necessarily a problem? Uh, why does it, why does it matter? It does that, uh, I share some of those feelings as well. And then I, uh, you know, I've got these two things in my mind at once all the time. And the other part of me is, is saying, well, that's that's the tribal urge kicking in. And that's the, yeah. uh, you know, they, they they talk about, for example, um, or oh, the amygdala or the amygdala that you can you can sort of use magnets to turn that off. And when you do, people tend to be uh, less fearful of immigration and fearful of other people coming in and and, and that kind of thing. So is that that maybe that tribal side of hey this is this is my thing and it's important and so people need to you know they can't just come in here and be us yeah. I, there's an interesting aspect to what you just said that basically the only way to to make people think differently is is to artificial means you have to use magnets <laughs> you have to use some like industrial yeah. uh solution to to alter human nature and it can only be altered for as long as there's a, man- a magnet connected to that. I mean, that tells you something. That tells you that, to an extent, tribalism is inevitable. You, you, we think of tribalism as kind of like, um, you know, black versus white or whatever. But aren't you? Do you have a family? Yeah, well, uh, not my own kids, but okay. parents and sure. wife sort of thing. Well, I'm I'm a I'm a father of two. Um, mm-hmm. When you're you're tribal about your own family, your family is not everyone's property, and neither is your home. 
and and so I think there there are kind of circles of tribalism that that get larger and larger and larger, right? And and we ultimately determine what those circles are. Um, and I think that when you have this kind of uh, this this cohesion, this breakdown of cohesion as a result of mass immigration, there, there's a kind of paradox here, right? Because the argument is, well, mass immigration is good because it overcomes tribalism. I actually think that it has the opposite effect. If if basically if cohesion breaks down as a result of of immigration, what it means to be an American, right? If that can no longer be concretely defined, the response is that people are actually going to retreat into other identities, as opposed yeah. to being an American. You're an Arab living in Britain. Uh, you're uh, you know an African nationalist in America, which no longer represents you because it's racist. You're you're a Chicano or you know you're a, a Latinx living in in the United States, it actually has the opposite effect. It increases the the worst kinds of tribalism. Just more little bits of tribalism. So tribalism is going to get its way anyway, but it might as well it might as well represent or, or help to um, enforce an entire nation and bring them together. Is what is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, ult ultimately, uh, when we're talking about tribalism. Like I said, I think it's inevitable, and we're talking about communities, um, and, and you can have. Uh, I think there are forms of identity that are less destructive than others. And and ultimately, I think, the, again, the paradox of migration, the open society is that it actually encourages, you know, what we often refer to as balkanization. Uh, it, it makes that kind of inevitable because I mean, you, you basically, imp it's not like you import a bunch of people and everyone agrees, okay, we're in the same economic zone now, we're gonna live together. Uh, you, you actually just often import these these conflicts. I mean, there, there are, I've been seeing reports of a lot of like street fights between like uh, different ethnic groups in the UK right now, right? I mean, that, I mean, that's kind of an example of what I'm talking about. Those things did not go away because everyone's allowed to own a shop now. Hmm. Well, yeah, I still think I still think tribalism, while it obviously has its perks and its positives, it, it also stops us thinking logically in, in some senses. And of course, I talked about those magnets as an artificial way of of, of reducing the fear. Um, but that makes us think more rationally, I, I suppose. So I'd, I guess I'd still be wary of, of some of that tribalism. I think there are other ways, of course. I mean, I remember interviewing uh, the, the terrorist who um, created the, uh, Jesse Morton, who created, he did the ingredients for the recipe for the marathon bomb in Boston. Uh, and he later worked to sort of talk people down. And he always spoke about how it was a long process, but it helped that he was like an in, someone on the inside being able to talk people down. So that would be the non-artificial way to change how somebody thinks. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, like I said, um, I'm not, I'm not like someone who thinks that conflict, um, I think that conflict to a degree is inevitable, but we obviously should do things to mitigate it and avoid it. Um, and, and again, that's that's really part of my opposition to these things. I think there's there's a, a a mistake that occurs when we have these debates, and someone takes a side of being like a restrictionist against someone who's more leaning towards like the open society. And the assumption is that the restrictionist is somehow he he takes that position because he doesn't like the other. He does, he hates the other, right? Um, that's not that's actually not true at all. And I, I think it's. It's a desire to avoid these kinds of things, uh, to avoid these like the needless polarization of society along, like I said, the worst kinds of, of, of uh, lines. Um, and I, I don't know, I actually, I actually think, again, I'm not trying to be a contrarian here, but I, I think about identity a lot as someone who's a Mexican-American who mm -hmm. doesn't identify with the first, you know, I, I consider myself an American um, and my wife is German. So my kids are Mexican, American, German, 
so I think about identity a lot. Uh, and I, I think that maybe sometimes we don't think about it enough and, and the implications of these things, right? Um, so, yeah. yeah I, take it I, think, I think that is quite a, a contrarian view for somebody who's on the other side to the what we might call the woke ideology to take because my issue with the woke ideology is that they are so obsessed with identities and their Twitter handles are full of I'm a white or for you to take your example, Mexican, American, German, I'm these things. Whereas I would want to say as an individualist, I'm somebody who likes singing and I like to read these books. And that's what defines yeah. me, not these sort of identities and ancestors. Although there is there is value in taking from their cultures. But I feel like when we obsess too much about those identities that's where society can whether it's the bolsheviks or you know the nazis and i, I, I don't that, that's always a cheap shot because everyone's always mentioned a nazi i don't mean that anyone who thinks about identity is a nazi or a bolshevik but when society goes too far those ways that's yeah. when they they can they can air yeah no i think look i think i i, I don't i'm using myself because i think maybe this is a, an interesting example but i'm not i'm not saying that mexicans don't like to read but um, I mean, there's an article in the New York Times that talks about like, I think the headline is something like the country that stopped reading. And it's about how just as, as, a, as a leisurely activity, uh, Mexicans don't read much. Right. And, and, so, and so, so, you, so, yeah. so does your son then have to have th that in, ingrained in, in who, their identity that they don't read? Isn't that? No, I just, I just think it's interesting. I, I just think it's interesting yeah. that basically like w w culture matters um, and, and, individuation, which is essentially what you're talking about, basically being part of a broader community, but then having like individual interests and, and proclivities and all that stuff. I think that's, that's totally fine and natural. But I just think, again, I think it's really interesting because we, we just kind of take all these things uh, for, for granted. We, we, make, we make a lot of assumptions because we kind of, uh, we don't realize that, there are, that culture is kind of particular. Um, mm. So, and my son reads a lot, by the way. He's two years <laughs> old, but he, he, loves, he loves books, so. Wait, how uh, old is he? He's my son is two, and I have an, uh, a nine-month-old daughter. Wow! Yeah. And he's and he, already he reading. Loves, yeah, he loves books. Uh, but I, we, we, we have like a rule for as long as possible. He's not. Our kids are not allowed to like watch movies or look at screens or interact with electronics. And so their only source of one of their only sources of of like entertainment is I, I read to them a lot. Uh, no. And they like it. They love it because they have no idea that there's, you know, video games and movies and stuff like that. <laughs> They'll find out soon enough. So what what are some of the biggest issues that you take with uh, some of the culture wars? And I suppose we're talking again with culture wars. We're talking about one side that wants to sort of police yeah. speech. Um, yeah. is, is that what we're talking about? Yeah. I just saw someone in the comments who said, I know Mexicans that read. I know. I, I know. <laughs> I, you're, you're talking to one. Uh, you're yes, you're, you're clearly yeah. very well read. You're, you have um, try, you're very eloquent in your... In your in your speech that, that comes from I, reading well thank you i try to be uh I, I mean for me the biggest thing right now is is uh transgenderism um okay and i think that there i i think that there there's a again there's another mistake that occurs i think when we discuss these issues that we dismiss things like this as kind of frivolous um that basically the culture war issues uh we, we take a kind of materialistic perspective which is that basically culture war issues uh, conceal the real war, which is the class war, right? And I actually think that the two are kind of entwined. Uh, I think that the the, the issues are not really, uh, you, you can't separate them as neatly, I think, as people assume. And, but transgenderism for me uh, is is a, uh, it, it's an immense threat because I think it strikes the core of society, which is the family. 
that you're you're ultimately not just talking about you know goofy people like you know Admiral Rachel Levine of the United States government who's you know obviously doesn't pass for a woman, but everyone is just supposed to you know respect that her pronouns and all that stuff. Uh, but I think it's it's actually much much more dangerous than that because ultimately what you're talking about is empowering the state to be able to um, to enforce a way of life that I think is fundamentally destructive. Um, I mean, in the United States, where you know the latest thing that just happened is that you have these major medical associations petitioning the Department of Justice to basically look in and suppress uh, movements, entities, and individuals who are, um, you know, militantly outspoken against uh, transgender ideology and, and the affirmative care model. If that, I mean, you're, you're talking about the, the federal government and its law enforcement agencies essentially viewing parents showing up to school board meetings uh, as, as essentially kind of like terroristic threats, potential terrorists. Man. So I think, I think it goes, again, it, you, it's easy to dismiss these things as kind of frivolous, but it has teeth. And it affects the way that you live. Well, well how does it, I, I suppose, again, I'm just thinking out loud here, it's, it's that your kids are exposed to this kind of stuff at school. Uh, and I suppose the worrying thing is that some of this stuff was said by people, you know, a couple of decades ago about gay people. When, and now the consensus in society is that, you know, it's fine to be gay and, and all of this stuff. What, what is different this time around? Are you talking about how the gay rights movement is somehow like immune from the problems that are afflicting the transgender rights movement? Well, I'm talking about how we've we've sort of, and I say most most of society. It's amazing how it happened because only 10, 15 years ago, I think a lot of uh, people were quite outspoken in the mainstream media about being against gay marriage, for example. Oh, I see. Um, now that's completely changed, and and people are sort of you know on board with it. Uh, but what the things you're saying about sort of the traditional family and that being lost, um, those things could still apply to homosexuality. I mean, how how do you feel about homosexuality? Yeah, well, I mean, I actually don't think it's, um, I think that the, the two issues are connected. Um, I mean, in, in some ways, uh, actually in a lot of ways, the gay rights movement was what you would call like a, a tribal movement. It was an ident identitarian movement because it was a movement based around sexual identity. And, um, and I think that, I mean, like, we're at this kind of uncomfortable inflection point where you, you see people who are essentially, you know, gay, uh, but that's not their entire identity, uh, who kind of, I think, feel a, a level of discomfort because um, they, they kind of see how the community that they're a part of, it, it maybe shares some of the kind of blame here for paving the road for the, the road for the kind of activism. Um, I think what I think is interesting, too, I mean, if you look at like marriage rates among gay people, uh, they're really, really low. So basically, we, we had this kind of revolution where, you know, we, we gave more power to the federal government to enforce non-discrimination. Uh, and, and we kind of changed the way that we look at fundamental institutions like the family and marriage and all that stuff. And in terms of like the the ostensible goal of these things, which was increasing, uh, enabling gays to get married, didn't really move the needle. I mean, it, it's it's a really, really small number. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's interesting. No one's really reckoned with that. So, but if you're asking me like, what do I think about, I don't, I don't hate gay people. Uh, but I, I do, uh, like I'm, I'm completely opposed to like the LGBT movement and LGBT ideology, because I think these things, uh, I don't, I don't think you can separate them from, 
the trans stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I Glenn is a fan of mine. What'd you say? I say Glenn Greenwald is a big fan of mine. So Greenwald. isn't that the guy who did the nine eleven documentaries? Yeah. Yeah. Oh right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, yeah. I, oh, is he gay? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I see. Yeah. No. Fair enough. Um. I. I just remember his name from that. That. That film. Um. But that's, that, that's what I mean, though. Glenn doesn't like advertise <laughs> it. You know, he doesn't have a little a flag in his in his bio. I think. I think. Look. I mean, obviously, the difference is when when you feel like you've been oppressed for a very long time, you do create these communities. You know, and uh, and that that's minorities as well. There are plenty of uh, Mexican American communities in in the U.S. in particular. There are Jewish communities. There are all sorts of communities where people find mutual ground while fighting against inequality. And uh, gay marriage, whether the statistics change, whether people actually wanted gay marriage, I think what they really wanted was to be able to if they wanted to, it's like fighting for the vote, uh, just because if you fight to have the vote, it doesn't mean you have to vote. And, and that if you if you don't, then you've wasted your time. I think the importance is that you're treated as a human being who's who's able to vote. Yeah, yeah, I, I, mean, this, I mean, I think this is just a point that we would end up just going on disagreement, but I'm, I just don't think that you can mm -hmm. do something so radical as redefining an institution uh, as old as marriage, and then kind of building an enforcement infrastructure around it, uh, and then kind of showing that there's a model for activism to do this. Like, it, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, I don't think the slippery slope is a fallacy, basically. Um, and, and there's a reason why, like, the, the main or a main line of attack against people like me is like, this is just like the fight over gay marriage all over again. It's the mm -hmm. same bigots. It's the same arguments. And yeah. just like that, which, which I wasn't like, saying, but I'm not saying. No, I know I'm you're just, not. I know you're not. But I'm saying this is this is happening regardless. And you know, pe basically, people like me are going to be relegated to the dustbin of history, just like the opponents of same-sex marriage were. And I mean, I, I think e even the the people who um, like the the advocates of this stuff, that is what they're saying, that this is all part of the same movement uh, along the arc of history. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's. This is one of the reasons why I think this issue is is so difficult. Uh, but also, the, like the stakes are really high. I mean, again, uh, you have these. I mean, I think the United States is actually probably the worst country in this regard. Like, even the UK has. I think they shut down recently, like their biggest gender clinic. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Tavistock. Yeah, we're we are like slamming the accelerator and going faster. Um, and and more and more, you hear these stories of like you know, kid goes to. I'll give you one really quickly. There was a story about a. Uh, a devout Pakistani Muslim uh, living in Washington and his son had autism. Um, he took his son to the hospital during COVID because his son had a particular, particularly bad episode. And I think he hurt himself. So we take him to the hospital and the hospital says, well, you can't stay the night because of COVID. So we'll look after your son and, and let you know uh, what's going on in the morning. So he gets a call and the hospital tells him, so uh, the hospital tells him that they consulted with social workers there and the social workers and the uh, physicians agreed that his son's problem isn't that he's autistic, it's that he's a girl. And the, the father was much, much smarter and level-headed than I would be. And, and he basically, he kind of knew that he had to play along. So he said, like, tell me what I have to do. W you know, tell me where the nearest gender clinics are, what the next step is. Wow. And, and so the hospital released his son 
He was so afraid because he knows what happens next. If he would not have gone along with this and the social workers are already involved, this becomes child abuse and you lose control of your kid or you risk losing control of your kid. So basically the father plays along, scoops his son up, takes his family and leaves the state of Washington. And this is happening more and more. Like I've interviewed parents who have had similar interactions with social workers. Um, and of course, you don't, you don't hear about this and it, because it, it totally contradicts the narrative, right? That this is you know, like a grassroots organic thing that's happening mm. from the bottom up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's totally insane. I mean, but, but the thing is, I would say if I'm, if I'm honest, I mean, somebody who's an adult deciding they want to be trans and do whatever they want to their body, it, it doesn't bother me personally. It's even something that if, if I saw that it made them happy, I, I would celebrate that. And I, I totally, you know, great. Uh, but what, where, where my, it's funny because everybody seems with the, I think it's why it catches the imagination so much, the, the, the gender fluid stuff, because everybody has something specific to them that, that either they agree with or they don't. And for me, just as a journalist, it's just this subversion of truth more than anything else. This idea that we're saying, you know, this woman raped someone, so they're in prison. And it's just like, it's not, it wasn't a woman that raped someone, you know, it, it's right. just not, it's just not true. And that's, that's my problem. It was a trans woman. And I'm happy to, to, to say that and happy to use pronouns that people want, want me to, and you know, make people happy and stuff. But uh, yeah, and I agree. I agree with the slippery slope, and I also agree with what you're saying about the, you know, it's very frustrating when the other side of a particular debate says seems to suggest that everything is progress. And I've always, I always say this: the pro one of the problems is that people on the right call people on the left progressives. I don't think that helps. It gives them the idea that they must be progressing uh, towards some sort of goal, and we know from history that that's not that's not how progressive sides or how how history works it goes back and forward all the time um the bolsheviks weren't progressive by our standards you know um what, what are we doing for time oh we're running out of time we just we've talked for ages god this this is this has flown by um was it was this we, we haven't even got to elon musk elon musk talk to me about elon musk quickly he's buying twitter um he's threatening to buy twitter i think the <laughs> i think that the, the uh, the most interesting aspect of the whole Musk saga, because we don't know if he's actually going to pull the trigger, and we also don't know if if his, you know, his his dictatorship at Twitter is going to bring about like meaningful change in the platform. But I think that from the beginning, the interesting thing is what it reveals. Uh, what what this what Elon's kind of like, you know, stepping in it so to speak has revealed about Twitter, and. I never looked, I personally never looked at Twitter as, a, as just a private company. I always kind of viewed it as, as, a, as a tool for creating consensus and, and kind of controlling narratives. And Musk attempting to wrest control of the platform really kind of revealed that. You know, like you have heads of state chiming in on why it would be problematic for Musk to take Twitter and turn it into an actual private company. Like that tells you something about the power of this platform. And I think, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll, I'll leave on this. There was a reporter for NBC News named uh, Ben Collins, and he made a thread where he said that basically losing control of Elon assuming control of Twitter would likely uh, negatively affect um, midterms. That it, it could affect the outcome of elections. Wow. Now, it, but in order for that to happen, then you have to already assume that Twitter can and does already have influence over elections which collins doesn't deny he basically says no, right we we do we do that we um and the opposite if if we lost control of twitter would be you know the authoritarianism would win or something like that because opposing viewpoints are illegitimate but it was just interesting because collins just really openly says 
Twitter has an impact on uh, outcomes and and our control of it and our ability to moderate things, you know, has a salutary effect for our politics in the opposite of their politics, fascism, Nazis, whatever you want to call it, right? So. It's really fascinating. And I, yeah, I'm sorry, I wanted to ask more about Musk and we've run out of time just because I was enjoying talking to you so much and I could have gone on for mm-hmm. hours. So we'll, we'll have to try and get you back on if you want to come on. But, um, where, yes. where do you want to send people, Pedro, Twitter and all that stuff? So uh, you can follow me on Twitter and almost everywhere else under the same handle. It's Emeriticus, E-M-E-R-I-T-I-C-U-S. And I've got a newsletter at contra.substack.com. Oh, thank you very much, Pedro. And um, have you. a lovely day. Thank you. Cool. Somebody disconnect Pedro. I don't know how to do it. Um, although, I'm, am I on Seanston? Can I can I invite people in? Let's have a look about inviting the next people in. Pedro is very interesting, a very eloquent, uh, articulate person. Um, and ho- hopefully we can get him back. I got so sort of deep into the uh, trans stuff and all that. Oh, who have we got? We've got Dave on. Dave, how are you doing? Uh, good, Andrew. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. I um, Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Where, where are you calling us from today? Uh, I live in Virginia. I'm about three hours south of Washington, D.C., so pretty far from uh, the capital there. Oh, right. Okay. I'm going out there soon, I think, D.C., but I'll tell you about that another time. Um, what do you would, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about your background and what you're on to talk about today. Yeah, well, I work for antiwar.com. I'm the news editor. I basically just cover news. Um, you know, it's in the name, our perspective, antiwar.com. Oh. Uh, it was founded in 1995. So the website's been around for a while. And we're libertarian, the staff, but we're, you know, single issue. And we have plenty of leftists and people from across the political spectrum, conservatives, liberals that write for us and contribute to us and everything. Um, but we're here, I'm here to talk about, uh, Julian Assange and the protests for him that are going to be taking place in DC and London as well, because for anybody that any journalist, any writer, any researcher in the U S and around the globe, uh, this should be, uh, you know, one of your, one of the biggest issues. It's the most important case of our lifetime. And I know you guys had Stella Assange on earlier to talk about the case, which is great. And I just want to thank you. And Sean for, you know, having us on to talk about this, because it's what we need is people with big audiences to care, because most of the mainstream journalists in the US, they just don't seem to care. They've sold them out. They made, you know, published thousands of articles based on the WikiLeaks, the things that Mm -hmm. he released. And now when he needs them, uh, you know, they're nowhere to be found. Oh, well, you're very welcome. It's something we've we've covered quite um, quite a lot. Um, Sean, in particular, is is very vociferous about Assange, and and I, I've been since since on this show, I've been learning more and more about him and his case. Dan Cohen, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks a lot for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. So tell me tell me your background now. Um, I'm a journalist and filmmaker. I make documentary films in addition to reporting. I live in Washington D.C., so I guess not too far from Dave. Hmm. Um, And I currently am independent. I'm in the process of actually founding a new media outlet, which will be called Uncaptured News or Uncaptured Media rather. Um, Hmm. So, you know, I think the implication is kind of obvious, not being captured by propaganda or or interests. And so many people um, I think have been. And so I'm, you know, one of the things I want to do is fight back against that and you know, just glad to be here with you guys for this for this stream to talk about really what you know, I totally agree with Dave, this is just the 
um, maybe the most important issue of our of our time. Um, and and you know we really have to do everything we can to defend Julian Assange, not only for the sake of Julian Assange, but for the sake of not living in a totalitarian state where uh, we just live in, well, as as Putin called it, an empire of lies. So that's uh, that's what I'm about. <laughs> I think we should, um, I guess we'll go to Dave, just to remind viewers, anyone who's been living under a rock, I suppose, and we could do it quite briefly, because I think most people are aware of this. But, you know, what is this, what is the situation with Assange? Where, where did that start? What did he release? And, you know, well, yeah, so right now he's being held in Belmarsh Prison in London uh, without charges. He's awaiting the the former uh, British Home Secretary, Preeta Patel. She has approved his extradition to the United States to be tried for publishing the Afghan and Iraq war logs that were leaked to him by Chelsea Manning, which exposed U.S. war crimes, torture. Um, I mean, it was really the, probably the greatest feat of journalism uh, maybe ever, uh, what, what he exposed hmm. there. Um, so right now they appealed the extradition and we're kind of just waiting to see what the next step is. Um, but the U.S. is trying to lock him away under the Espionage Act, 17 counts of espionage, which is a, a law that was passed during World War I when the U.S. entered to kind of squash. The idea was to squash dissent about the war, about the policies. And now we're seeing it come back because so far they've never used it to uh, prosecute a journalist. And that's what Assange is. You know, people call him a whistleblower, and he is in a sense, but technically speaking, he's a publisher, he's a journalist, all he did was publish documents. And so they're mm -hmm. accusing him of basically um, making Manning leak the documents, kind of manipulating her. But really, if you speak with any journalist, um, Dan could definitely speak to this. And by the way, Dan, I'm a huge fan of your work. I, I've been for a long time. So this is pretty Thank cool you, to be talking to you. That. But, um, you know, what he did, it's standard journalistic practice. He said, you know, he asked for the leaks. You know, Manning uh, made it clear that she was willing to provide something. And, and, you know, he followed up on it and they published it. And the other accusation is that those leaks got people killed. But during Manning's trials, um, it was found that, no, they, they couldn't point to a single case where like a U.S. asset or, or something, yeah, intelligence asset or something was killed be because of these leaks. Um, so as it stands right now, that's the situation. They're trying to extradite him and Joe Biden could drop the case any day. You know, it's one of the most shameful things that Trump did was oversee this. It was his Justice Department that unsealed the indictments. And now Biden is uh, is going through with trying to put him away. And just mm -hmm. the precedent that it would set. I mean, there's just a lot to get into, but that's basically the brief background okay. uh, on this situation. And so, Dan... I suppose with with any sort of rights uh, debate or balance or whatever, there's there's always another side. There's always a, you know, and and that side might be okay. Well, this could have been potentially dangerous for a lot of people releasing these these uh, this secret information. Um, so so why why is this such an important moment for for free speech, regardless? Well, the claim has been that I mean, as Dave said, that um, Assange publishing uh sensitive information um made uh put put u.s agents in danger but actually assange contacted the state part state department approached the state department before he published any of his uh i believe it was Cablegate, um the huge troves of of state department cables that just kind of showed the inner workings of empire 
Um, and the State Department declined to collaborate with him. The whole idea was, well, we would redact names and that sort of thing in order to not endanger, endanger right. anyone working in hostile areas. The State Department totally declined. And then, of course, years later, Mike Pompeo, um, you know, Trump's CIA director and then and then State Department head uh, goes on to call him to call Assange a um, hostile foreign intelligence agency. So the irony of that can't be understated. But I mean, in terms of the importance of this case, it's not only for for journalists, you know, like Dave or myself or anyone who is challenging or seeking to hold um, power to account, but really anyone, any kind of anybody, and not only in the United States, but anybody in the world who dares to speak the truth about what the U.S. empire and its junior partners are doing um, is is becomes a target. Of course, Assange is not a citizen of the United States, so it's completely absurd for him to be um, accused of treason. How can you commit treason um, against a country that you're not a citizen of. It's totally absurd. Um, and so really every single person who, you know, believes in freedom, liberty, whatever that means to you, or your, your ability to express yourself should be extremely concerned. Um, and a lot of what Assange, you know, has said um, has has been vindicated. I mean, the WikiLeaks and Assange have a 100% perfect track record. They've never published anything false, yet you know they're considered uh, by the mainstream to be some kind of pariah um, deserving of of you know the worst treatment. And it's really remarkable and telling to see that. All of these uh, reporters and journalists in the United States and in the UK, who and Australia, who um, collaborated with with Assange in his in the earlier years, back in the Cablegate days, and made careers even off of the material that he presented to them. And the New York Times and the Washington Washington Post and the Guardian are now totally silent. And so, you know, it's it's it just says everything about our media scape that. We have so few actual journalists left um, in the United States because basically if you want to have a career, you have to serve powerful interests and then you essentially do propaganda. You know, if you work for the New York Times, you're serving basically BlackRock, I mean, and, and giant uh, financial conglomerates that uh, own you. And of course, you can't you can't contradict them even if you wanted to. Um, mm. So it's so important that you know, we speak out in, in whatever way we can, because this is still a battle. Um, I think it's easy to fall, to be pessimistic and, and say, well, you know, it's a done deal that um, Assange is, is, you know, gonna rot in prison for the rest of his life. But um, things are unpredictable. And we owe it not only to, to Julian Assange and, and his, his wife, Stella and their, and their little boys, but to our own principles to fight, uh, fight for this case. Wow, beautifully put, Dan. Uh, Dave, do you have uh, anything to add to that just on that topic? And, and also, uh, would you let us know a little bit about the rallies that are taking place in DC, um, London and elsewhere? Uh, yeah, so uh, just to add a little bit to what Dan said, you know, one of kind of the most egregious things about this case is that Assange is an Australian citizen. Hmm. So it's not, it doesn't just matter to people in the US or people in the UK where he's been held. It, it does matter to people all across the world because it will set a precedent that the US can 
reach across the, the world and grab a journalist that published something they don't like and, and put them away uh, for life. Um, so I think that's why it should be more of a, a global thing here, uh, a global opposition to what's happening to Assange. And the rallies are, um, so you could go to handsoffassange.com. It's a website that the organizers just set up. And it has information about the rally that's going to be in D.C., where me and Dan will be speaking. And also the big one really in London around uh, British Parliament, people are going to surround it. But there's also protests taking place in uh, in other countries. There's a few in Aust- in Australia and a few Australian cities and uh, New Zealand. They're going to protest outside of New Zealand's parliament. I know Germany and Italy and in the U.S. too, also in San Francisco and Denver. Um, so there's a lot of actions there and you could also follow, there's a Twitter handle candles for Assange. That's for the number uh, four. And that they're going to tweet out updates and, and videos of the, the, the speeches and everything. Um, so there's a lot of stuff happening this weekend. If people want to get involved, the more I learn about this, the more it, it freaks me out, actually. I mean, it, it is such a shame that I guess the media, the mainstream media, I hate saying that God, but ha- haven't covered, it enough particularly recently and so those who don't really know that much that and that was me about you know a year ago i would have just walked around not really known that much oh who's that they're rallying against something i don't really know and uh assange wasn't he the guy who leaked secrets that probably got loads of people killed and well there you go and now i'm looking at it as okay well he was given that this is what you're telling me he's given that information uh he gave what was it the cia fbi who was he given the, the state department the State Department, the opportunity to sort of make that safer once he had the information, he, he got it out there. It was really important stuff that he got out of there because we can't have, you know, you, you need a government to be transparent. You can't have them just doing things. I suppose to an extent you need secrets too. To, I don't know, but that's a whole other topic. And he's been, in, you know, either locked up, you know, in an embassy or a prison for longer than like certain murderers and things, I think, or at least, you know, sexual molesters and things. So that just seems outrageous. Has he got... I mean, is there any way he's going to be? Let, do, you, do you feel uh, optimistic that he'll ever be just let out and walking the streets? Uh, Dan, do you want to? What do you think? Well, I don't want to say I feel optimistic, but you know, I mean, the future is not written yet, and I think uh, you know, again, it's easy to to kind of sit and feel defeated and sad about it, um, mm-hmm. but there's still so much to fight for. And, and it's, it's not a done deal. Um, And there's nothing, you know, the fact that the United States and it's, you know, the UK and all of its kind of vassals, you could say around the world, were so incredibly threatened by what WikiLeaks published just speaks to how fearful they are of, you know, people power, um, Mm. of an actual people's, you know, uprising, some kind of democratic real democratic voice. I don't mean like the democratic party, but you know, people really coming together and saying, you know, enough, this is, this is ridiculous. This is unacceptable. Um, and as conditions continue to just get worse and worse, uh, in the West in particular, which, you know, obviously I guess you're in, you're in the UK. So, I mean, there's, you know, I don't need to tell you and, and inflation is crushing us here in the United States. I mean, I think people are forced to wake up and so, you know, the people who are um, very lucid about what's happening to Assange are, you know, it's because we're paying attention. It's because, you know, we're, we've been paying attention. 
Um, but it's but it's not because you know we have some like special consciousness consciousness or or mission. It's so um, I mean I'm just you know not willing to to feel um, pessimistic. But I'm but I think I think it's important to be a realist and and not be you know overly optimistic either. And just say you know what whatever the result is it doesn't matter. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to go out there and speak on Saturday and Dave is and, and no matter, you know, whether it's 10 people or 10,000 people, the message is exactly the same. Dave. Yeah. Going back to what I was just thinking before, is it possible that people maybe wouldn't like to admit it and particularly viewers of this channel who would like the truth to be exposed, but maybe people like uh, that the government keeps secrets from them and keeps them a little bit sheltered from things and they don't like things being exposed. I think that's certainly uh, uh, true with some people to to an extent. You know, they like to just kind of have everything taken care of for them. Um, but I think, you know, understanding the truth and what our governments are, are doing with our tax money, because that stuff, you know, it comes, it comes home. It, it comes back to bite us. I mean, it's pretty widely accepted today that 9-11 uh, probably wouldn't have happened if the U.S. wasn't intervening in the in the Middle East, that it was blowback. And this is something that people said, you know, shortly after the attacks, and they received all sorts of death threats and stuff. So people want to kind of live in this bubble. But you have to understand, you know, there's this huge war machine out there killing a lot of people and, and doing horrible things in your name. And the people mm. that uh, want to get revenge on that uh, might not care if you or your your family are you know, hurt as, as, and I mean, you look at the situation right now, the tensions between the U S and Russia, I mean, saying, of course, the Assange case is one of the most important things in the world right now, but also avoiding nuclear war is as well. And it seems like a lot of people don't understand the risk of us funding a war right on Russia's border, giving Ukraine all this support. And when we think of, look at the situation now, I mean, even kind of speaking out against that, I, I get, you know, a lot of, hate directed at me on the internet, at least saying that we should de-escalate and that the U.S. shouldn't be supporting this war on Russia's border. But you look at WikiLeaks and the dumps that they did, the State Department cables, and the, to see what U.S. officials were, were telling each other. Right now, something that would be really important would be a WikiLeaks-style dump, like just to see what U.S. officials were saying to each other and British officials, especially Boris Johnson, what he was up to in these past <laughs> six months. And the time leading up to the war in Ukraine, because there's a lot of evidence that the U.S. Um, wants this war to prolong to hurt Russia. I mean, they've basically said that publicly. So that's why institutions like WikiLeaks are so important. And if Assange gets extradited and put away, um, we'll probably never see anything like that again. And then not only could they prosecute that, they could, you know, uh, prosecute somebody just for having a source that tells them something they don't like. Prosecute a New York Times journalist or something like that. It could get that bad. And uh, as we're standing, I think in one of the most dangerous times in history. I mean, this isn't just me saying that this anti-war uh, guy, but it's you know very esteemed diplomats and government officials are saying right now the risk of nuclear war is higher than it was during the Cold War. And it doesn't seem like that's people really understand that. Like if you just look at kind of the mainstream attitude about it 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 just doesn't seem like that's synced mm. into too, to too many people. existential threats i suppose at once it's too yeah. scary but i mean i suppose just our dev devil's advocate there that i guess i guess people on the other side would say we're not supporting uh 
Ukraine's war, we're, we're intervening in Russia's war, and that if, if stuff were to get out, secrets that the US government has, it would um, only help Putin enforce his war. So it just depends what side uh, you're on, which is every, you know, that's what life's about, those those debates and people see things from different perspectives. Um, Assange's treatment is apparently um, torture, according to Nils Meltzer, a UN special rapporteur on torture. Um, Dan, what do you know about that? Well, I mean, Assange spent, I think, was it seven years inside the Ecuadorian embassy um, before he was dragged out by by police and is now in Belmarsh prison, which the conditions are horrible. Um, Mm -hmm. He's suffered severe physical and psychological health problems as this, um, you know, his his imprisonment has dragged on. The extradition hearings have dragged on. And, you know, he's he's at risk of of death. As you said, Niels Melzer, the UN Rapporteur on Torture, has has said that his wife, Stella Assange, has said that his um, there's there's no doubt about it. And you have to wonder, Mm. is that the point? Is that, you know, kind of the goal? The goal here is just such extreme, severe punishment that it breaks him and and kills him. And you have to think that someone like Assange is um, has an incredibly strong mind certainly far more than you know myself or the average person but we're all but he's human and at some point um there you know that can happen and and um you know just the the extreme cruel unusual punishment which is you know what torture Mm -hmm. is for um just revealing um state secrets that are in the public interest really says everything about you know, the US and UK government and, and everyone who's participated in this, that they believe in the opposite of democracy. And, you know, I hate to, I don't throw the term fascism around lightly, but I mean, when you're talking about um, someone who is basically just doing an act of, of journalism and is um, facing yeah. such, you know, yeah, horrible, horrible treatment, uh, you have to, you have to, you know, you ha- I, th- I think that word is appropriate. And I'm not talking about the kind of World War II um, style of, you know, uh, um, high-stepping fascism and sig heiling and that kind of thing, but a neoliberal form of fascism where, um, you know, on one hand, Joe Biden will say he's so committed to diversity and we have, you know, this, um, you know, mm. the first this and the first that, but at the same time is crushing the very kind of foundations of of democracy. And so, um, you know, I think that's kind of the, the issue. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think I think you're right. And I think I think you're, you know, you're also right. I, I, I was wary of I said something about Nazis in the previous interview, and uh, realized I, I sound like a cliche or whatever. But but I think you're, you're right. I, I, everyone always argues about the definition of, of fascism. But that sort of repression of free speech is always really, really scary. Um, Dave, have you got anything to, to add just about the conditions that Assange is facing right now? Yeah, well, Nils Melzer, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, he's a very interesting case. And he actually just wrote a put out a book called The Trial of Julian Assange um, that people should check out. But you don't just have to read the book. I mean, he's written on this extensively because he went to investigate this case. And he says, you know, he kind of bought into all the propaganda until he started looking into it. And now he believes that Assange has been tortured, you know, psychological torture. And part of that has been this whole vilification of him. 
know, one thing I remember a lot of these mainstream journalists, um, when he was held up in the Ecuadorian embassy, they, they were just make, make fun of him as, you know, paranoid, uh, you know, that he didn't need to seek asylum there. And then you see him get dragged out there in, in April, 2019, I believe it was, was when he was arrested and, and hauled out of the embassy. And you see that scene and, and just the, the fact that they were mocking him and, um, there was he was under surveillance. Uh, this Spanish private security firm, UC Global. Um, I believe they might know more about this than me. That it's pretty certain that he it was uh, U.S. the CIA or U.S. intelligence that contracted them to spy on Assange. And you know, the stuff was getting out to the media of him like riding a skateboard around in the embassy and and hanging out with his cat a lot. And they're saying, "Oh, look, he's going crazy. He's nuts." So I mean, that has must have taken a serious toll. On, I can't imagine uh, all that attention and and mocking and your whole character just being completely destroyed by the this huge uh, mass media machine. Uh, so I, I would people if they don't know much about it, n- just Google Nils Melzer, Julian Assange. Um, and mm, yeah, he, he was really he was on the show actually. Nils. Oh, nice. On, um, promoting his book, I think last Christmas. Uh, just remembering now, but uh, yeah, no, fascinating man and all that. Um, we're running quite low on time. I, both of you, um, I guess we'll start with Dan. Uh, let us know where you'd like to send people to go, you know, check out your stuff and all that. Well, I wish I could promote my my website. It's not quite up yet, though. But in the coming weeks, I'll have Uncaptured Media founded. But for now, you can uh, check out, just check me out on Twitter at Dan Cohen 3000. Um, I started a Substack. I just I have an investigation on U.S. intervention in Haiti, where there's a major uprising taking place, and um, I also have a uh, a three part documentary coming out in the next couple of weeks on the background to that uprising and what's going on right now. And so um, it's called Another Vision Inside Haiti's Uprising. So um, yeah, just uh, I'll, I'll link to it on Twitter and just uh, check me out there. Fantastic. Please do go support our guest, Dan. And Dave, tell us a bit about anti-war again. And where else yeah, you so, like to send people? Sorry. Yeah. Um, so all my work, my writing and stuff is at antiwar.com. And we're actually doing a fundraiser now because we're totally reliant on our readers. So we have to do a fundraiser a few times each year. And if you go on the site right now, we actually got a pretty cool endorsement. Uh, Noam Chomsky wrote a letter uh, yeah. telling people to give to us, uh, which is very cool. He says he he relies on us as a source of news every day. He, wow. he, he mentioned some specific things that I covered. So it's just pretty cool to know. Um, and again, that's an example of how we're all sorts all over the political spectrum. Uh, people yeah. read us. Um, and I also just recently started a podcast for antiwar.com. It's called Anti-War News with Dave DeCamp. Um, I have a YouTube channel. People could go subscribe there or you could download it wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, um, cool. But again, uh, and Twitter, I'm on Twitter at DeCampDave if you want to follow me there. Cool. Any any last words? I'm not going to kill either of you, but just, um, you know, last words on the interview. Uh, oh, sorry, Dave. I mean, just no, thanks uh, Thanks for, for getting the word out. Um, and yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of anti-war. So, you know, keep up keep up the good work over there, Dave. Um, and, you know, yeah, if you're, if you're anywhere near any of these rallies on this coming Saturday, here in DC, I'll be there. Dave will be speaking, of course, in London. Uh, they'll be joining hands around the Parliament, um, and just just um, out where where protests are going on. And if you can't make it to that, at least uh, make your voice heard online, because this is 
yeah, I mean, one of the key issues of our time and it's, it affects all of us. So thanks again for, for hosting this. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Uh, Dave, any luck? Yeah. But you're going to go on. Sorry. Yeah. Just to mention, uh, if you look at, you could check out the speaker list too, for the DC event, because it's huge. I mean, there's a lot of big names, Chris Hedges, uh, Jill Stein are a few of the people I could think of. I mean, it's about like 20 people, I think. So it's going to be a lot of short, intense speeches. And uh, if you can't make it there, they're going to make it on YouTube and stuff. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, yeah, support Assange and, and tell your friends about Assange and, and just get the word out. Fantastic. Dan and Dave, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I think the viewers absolutely loved you both. So they'll check out your stuff. Please do everyone check and support our guests and have a lovely day. Thanks, Thanks a lot. lot. Cheers, guys. <sighs> right, Sean O. Oh, here he is. Can you hear me? <laughs> I even hear you when you're not on, mate. I hear you all day in there. Good for you, brother. You've done a phenomenal job, and now it is time for you to go and get some rest and relaxation. Thanks, mate. It's time for me to get D- some bloody dinner. Despite um, despite all the despite all the saboteurs and the crackling and the Wi-Fi manipulation, we made it through the night. We did indeed. Well, Shauno, you're a lovely, beautiful man. You're a lovely yellow man today. It's been fun. We did all right, actually. I think we did pretty well. Right, I'm going to have dinner. I've got dinner now because I can't have bloody dinner at a normal time because of you and your show. Um, thank you, everyone. Comes on the edge of Andrew Gold. You know the drill. And thank you, Sean. You're a lovely man. I'm getting told my audio is a bit loud. It's what? it's loud. It's peaking for some reason, but I thought it's right at the end. So, What about if I just put my microphone a bit further away from me? Is that better? Yeah, it is. It's good now. Right, I'm going. I'm hungry. Oh, he's gone. I think that's what it is. All right, I'll get rid of you. All right, cheers. See you, mate. Is that all good with you now, Ash? Do I sound okay? We're going to bring in the next guests. And we are having a stop child abuse round table made up of Annika Lucas, Maggie Oliver, and Gloria Masters. All three, as you know, if you're a long-time viewer of the channel, have done tremendous work in the Survivor community. We have interviewed them multiple times, so we're honoured that they're coming together this evening to talk about what needs to be changed to stop this global epidemic. And many of you know that our mission statement on this channel is to end the war on drugs and mass incarceration and to take all that money and to house and go after predators and to house them for longer and the whole justice system is basically upside down so I've just invited Annika Lucas in let me see if I can find the other names on the list hey Annika how's it going Hi, Sean. Nice to see you again. Yeah, you too. I'm just inviting the other two guests in. And your internet is, um, <laughs> looks like you've got, you've got more powerful internet. <laughs> Last time we had a bit of a problem, yes. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit touch and go as it was earlier today with Julian Assange's wife. They tried to take us down. So, to the viewers then, who are not familiar 
with these three activists on the screen. Huge thank you to all three of you for coming on. Should we just go around the screen and you, you could just each introduce yourself and I know Gloria has got a more formal introduction to what we're going to be doing this evening. So Annika, do you want to start then? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Annika Lucas. I'm uh, first a survivor of uh, child sex trafficking, which uh, included uh, satanic ritual abuse and mind control. I'm from Belgium. I was uh, trafficked in the Belgian network. And I uh, recently published a book, uh, Quest for Love, Memoir of a Child Sex Slave. And I uh, work with survivors as a counselor. Uh, so you can find me... Um, um, just typing in my name, you'll 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 see a lot come up, a lot of interviews, etc. Thank you. Okay, Maggie next. Hi, Sean. Um, nice to Hi. be here. Um, yeah, I was a police officer working with the Greater Manchester Police for 16 years, um, and I saw repeatedly victims of sexual abuse, uh, particularly the grooming gangs, um, being failed and the authorities turning away. Um, I spent about 18 months as a serving police officer trying to get the truth out there, um, failed, thought I'd go to prison. I ended up resigning and speaking out publicly and I um, became the programme consultant on the drama Three Girls. Now I've started, I wrote my book, um, Survivors, if anybody wants to read it, um, and I started the Maggie Oliver Foundation three years ago and we are advocating and fighting for victims who have no voice and we also support survivors of child sexual abuse adult survivors um, as they try to put their lives back together so that's a, a, a quick run through fantastic and some people may have seen your the podcast we've done okay yeah. gloria do you want to do you want to introduce yourself and then give us a bit more background about what yeah. the structure is for the night okay certainly kiora Tifana from New Zealand. Lovely to meet you, Maggie. Um, Annika, I've met you before. But hey, for the audience watching, and, and thank you again, Sean, for this. We, uh, I am a survivor of 16 years of child sexual abuse, including um, trafficking, leased to gangs, uh, torture, and uh, pornographic movies, all child exploitation. Family made a great deal of money out of me. That's my backstory. That's in a memoir I wrote and published last year. This year, I've written and published Flight Path to Healing, a guide for child sexual abuse survivors uh, from one survivor to another to help people traverse the really traumatic, difficult terrain that recovering from this brings. It's not a simple path and the layers go deep, as, as we all know. Um, the reason for this um, tonight and this panel discussion is quite simple, really. Um, I was keen to get these fabulous women in the room because we are three women. We are leaders in our space. We are from three different parts of the world. And uh, we need to look at CSA, child sexual abuse, globally. Why? Because it's time. Why? Because there is such a need for this. In New Zealand, police give me one report of up to one in three adults. And I'm not just talking girls. It's hugely underreported with our males simply because uh, they, there is no 
space for them to do that. And reason is uh, men are meant to be strong and brave and deal with everything that comes their way as well as protect us. So therein lies the disparity. So simply three women, three leaders, three different countries. Uh, Welcome to all. Okay, because of what you guys have just said then about being survivors, I'm under a legal restriction from the UK police in this country. So I've got to ask you a question before we can proceed. And that is, Annika, do you waive your anonymity? Yes. Okay, and Gloria, do you waive your anonymity? Yes, I do. Okay, thank you very much. Well, and as you guys know, one of the things we're campaigning for is to end the war on drugs and mass incarceration, take those resources, go after the predators. It just seems that, you know, they're locking young people up for really long terms for drugs and stuff like that. Yet these paedophiles get slaps on the wrist. You know, if they're with the church, they bring in these high priced lawyers, as we saw in that documentary, Sins of My Father. And they create hundreds and hundreds of victims. And these victims then, they're traumatized. Many of them get into drugs and crime. They fill the prison system, which is a massive burden on society. Why do you guys think then that the justice system on this heinous crime has got it upside down? Let's start with Annika. Well, yes, my answer to that is quite simple. um, Because I was trafficked in the what I call the seat of power, which involved uh, world leaders at the time. So we're talking when I was nine years old, and this is 1972. So at that time, there were people involved who were very visible on the world stage at that time, who were obviously pedophiles, and they were satanic. That's to say they engaged in um, horrendous rituals uh, that included uh, child sacrifice. So um, them... That culture also uh, that I that I um, observed within the elite um, uh, is seems to be one of child abuse uh, in, that their own children were being abused as well, and uh, these were all, uh, to my um, understanding, they were all survivors of child abuse, child sexual abuse themselves, who had never had any healing, never had the courage to really look at a little bit more deeply at their own pain, and then. Um, use the power system to literally dump on everyone, but especially on directly um, get a release from their own pain on new victims. And of course, protect and use their resources, their extensive resources and um, legalized theft of uh, all of us from all of us to basically protect these lies, meaning the biggest lie that those people at the very top are either are pedophiles or um, are closing their eyes to pedophiles they know. So, so Maggie, working in law enforcement, then you know you told us about your own struggles in the first podcast that we did. So what is your perspective on why the justice system has got this upside down? I think what I would say, Sean, Annika, thank you for sharing that. Um, Anybody who wants to know my backstory can read my book. But I want to focus on what the foundation is doing today. And what what you've just said there, Annika, absolutely rings a bell with me today. Because in the foundation, we are approached now every day by victims who are being failed today. And I can tell you categorically, truthfully, that we are dealing with a similar case today that you have just spoken about. But what I would say is that 
the Maggie Oliver Foundation, we are fighting for those who don't have a voice. And what I am trying to do with my team, who are fantastic, many of us are survivors, is join together the dots and build a voice, build a powerful voice and share details, not individual details and identities, but share the details of how the authorities are failing victims today by exactly what you say, by covering up by corruption, by people in high places. You know, I've been involved now in, in as you know, Sean, in, in, in many, you know, I was part of the National Abuse Inquiry, the ICSA Inquiry, which was meant to look at organized networks. It was, the, the, the terms of reference were too narrow. They didn't pick the right towns and cities. They didn't allow victims to speak. So those in places of power want to dampen down the voices of those who know the truth. And that is where the foundation um, is unique because we are, um, some of my team are ex-police officers. We know how the system works. Um, some of us, including myself, we have faced the fear of going to prison for speaking the truth. And once you've faced up to that fear and you've accepted the consequences, actually, the power has gone from those at the top. And I don't care what people say. For me, it is about sharing the truth, bringing in the changes and exposing the corruption where it exists. And it's by women like us and I'm sure allowing us to speak that we build an army for change. And you know anybody who wants to know what we do, follow Maggie Oliver UK on Twitter, on LinkedIn, you know, all three of us, I think, are doing the same thing in different countries and sharing the truth and reaching the public. And I think that's the only way we are going to bring about changes. I don't know any other way to do it. So, Gloria, why do you think the system is upside down with this? Yeah, look, I, I completely endorse 100% what, what Maggie just said. The, um, in my humble opinion, it's quite simple. It's upside down because it doesn't suit the narrative. There's an investment in this, and it is from the power base. Secondly, we have three core groups. We have gatekeepers, we have enablers, and we have pedophiles. And each of the three work in conjunction with each other. There is no appetite for this to be exposed because among uh, people like ourselves or good people out across the world, Sean, they don't like to discuss child sexual abuse. It's not a pleasant topic. All that does, in my humble opinion, is give a free pass to the pedophiles to continue with their trafficking and their pedophile rings. We struggle with discussing it, not as in these people on this panel, but globally across the world, there's no permission or appetite. And in fact, the silence is deafening. So what we need to do is shout it from the rooftops. Uh, people say to me, why do you keep talking about this? And my answer is simple. It could be your child or grandchild I save. Yeah. Fantastic answers from all three of you. Thank you. So you'd think sure, then... Sure. Can I just yes? say that, you know, we three um, live and breathe this topic every day, but it's only with people like you and with media partners that we are able to share these truths because without the media, 
um, we are one voice hidden in the background. So, you know, all three of us, I'm sure, but in the foundation, we have trusted media partners. And when the authorities fail to act, we go to those trusted media partners. We share survivor stories because it is like gathering an encyclopedia of evidence. Um, and that builds pressure, I hope. Well, it does build pressure, but there's a backlash, which leads to my next question, because Maggie, you know, the stuff that we did and the coverage we did on Epstein and personal stories of, of Gloria and Annika, things of, the, of that nature that we were posted on YouTube reached such a point. We had so many people watching this stuff that YouTube terminated my channel twice. Campaigns were launched against me. I was called into the police station and I got a caution over it and restrictions on reporting it, and on and on and on it, it, it goes. So my question for you guys is then, um, when you are talking about this and you're putting yourself out there, are you guys experiencing this backlash as well? Start with Annika. Yes, uh, that is the <laughs> simple answer, absolutely. Um, in the last years, I have been infiltrated. Weird people have shown up at my door. My life has been threatened several times, as well as my family's. Um, um, yes, absolutely. And I think this was particularly related to um, my uh, wanting or my being approached by a lawyer to potentially file a lawsuit against the estate of one of my perpetrators. Uh, which I had shared on your show, and right afterwards, this started in full force. You know, it was very, quite something. The, the the the, but as soon as my story went viral in 2016, which was you know a little video, black and white video, um, that went around the world, um, things started to happen. And then, after 2020, since I did not um, go go forward with this lawsuit, not really because I really didn't want to I just kind of was going along and we ended up without a lawyer in New York and that's really the reason um, but we did have other people um, uh, other survivors who were willing to um, be part of this uh, lawsuit and uh, um, it just wasn't it wasn't right but by the time that we would have gone and filed that uh, complaint uh, and it would have become public basically the interestingly the, the the media had picked up that on the topic and now the SRA, which was there was one count in this complaint that had uh, to do with a, a sacrifice um, and blood, the blood of the victim of the, of the child being drunk at this ritual. So um, the, the, the rest was 95 counts of sexual abuse or something like that. But there was that one count um, of the ritual. So by the time that we would have filed a lawsuit, um, all of the uh, media, the mainstream media, PBS, which is, you know, national uh, um, public radio here, had um, massive campaigns uh, linking SRA, satanic ritual abuse, to QAnon. And it was become and had become a right wing conspiracy theory. The entire thing was mocked, and there were literally yoga influencers. You know, I come from the yoga background. Yoga influencers telling their followers, "Please, people, do not be so naive. Do not believe that the elite kill children and drink their blood. That is ridiculous." And um, I was receiving emails from people who knew my story. Um, to, to warn me against this horrif horrific um, 
um, ridiculous um, um, uh, conspiracy theory that was my, <laughs> my own story. So yes, it seems like um, I personally have uh, dealt with this a lot. And um, now that my book is out, uh, things um, I'm assuming things are uh, starting up, going to be starting up again. And um, and then there's also, you know, what seems like, you know, a very well-timed uh, media campaign in case uh, we would have um, been revealing the, the name of that perpetrator in a lawsuit. Yeah, I was labeled a QAnon conspiracy theorist at the height of the Epstein coverage. So, Maggie, do you think that you are walking through fire on this mission? Yes, um, but you know what? They picked on the wrong one. Because once you make a decision, you are going to stand up for, for what is right. You know, ordinary, decent people, there is no turning back. And Annika, I, I absolutely take my hat off to you for sharing your story. Um, but I remember when I was going through all this in the police, um, and I remember what it did to me, and I couldn't really talk about what they did to me. So what I have tried to do, is not talk about what they did to me because that doesn't matter. I'm trying to gather lots of different stories because I think there's strength in numbers. And you can add detail to your story. But if there's 10 people like you and 50 and 100 and 1,000, I want everybody to come to the foundation because we are gathering the evidence of everybody who is being failed in the same way. So throughout the UK now, um, we say to every survivor or victim of sexual abuse, of childhood sexual abuse, come to us. Um, we just had a review into Oldham. We are trying to build the national picture um, and take those cases to the police. Now, if they do nothing, we go to the media. But I want to see senior police officers held to account for failures. And it doesn't really matter which those cases are. It's a pattern of failure for every victim who is like you. Um, but all those individual stories need to be gathered together because otherwise they will dismiss one victim, horrific as it is, as one victim. But you're not alone, are you? You know, there's thousands like you and they would have you believe that you are isolated, that you've got nobody else beside you. I do believe there's strength in numbers. And I see the foundation as the... Um, the magnet for those voices to come in the UK. And there is nowhere else, I don't think, in the UK. I don't know about your countries. Where do you live, Annika? I live in the US and I work with the survivors all, all day long. Yeah. Yeah. So you know it's the, probably the same in the US. Yes, but most of SRA survivors have not gone uh, to the police, for example, you know, so we're dealing with different things a little bit. It's more about yeah. spreading awareness and I'm also supporting survivors in coming out with their stories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm known for grooming gangs, um, but really any victim of sexual abuse is equally traumatised, um, I think. Thanks, Maggie. Gloria, what's your backlash been like? Yeah, well, interesting. Um, with people in the survivor community, nothing but love and support and please never stop. Um, and that's global, and there's lots of interest globally, uh, partly due to the unique nature of my own horror story, but also the fact that I run a YouTube channel where interviewing survivors is, um, is shared, as well as tips for supporting survivors. 
Uh, and the reason for that, and then I'll come back, Sean, to what you asked. The reason for that team is because I agree with Maggie, we need to get numbers together. If two-thirds of the population have not experienced child sexual abuse, I want to provide tips for them on how to support us as survivors of child sexual abuse. If we can bring people in and um, and encourage and provide resource and support, I think that's crucial. In terms of um, the backlash here, it's deafening silence, Sean. In the UK, in the States, across the world, I'm interviewed constantly. In New Zealand, nada, nil, zero, minus one. No interest whatsoever. Why? Because it doesn't fit the narrative. I've been told by two key media outlets, our viewers would be disturbed by this. So, in other words, let's put it under the rug and never expose it. But that just makes someone like me, and I think, Maggie, you and I have this in common, <laughs> that just makes <laughs> someone like me a bit more determined. Yeah. And uh, we are warriors. We will never give up advocating and, and fighting for what is right. So I think in terms of what's needed, uh, we need to take the... Uh, the peel the rip the plaster off, rip the band-aid off and get this out there front and center because unfortunately the biggest global industry financially is trafficking, specifically child sex trafficking. You know what, Gloria, I, I always say to people, as a police officer, Sean, you've just said about drug crime, you know, about um, I used to work in major crime. I didn't work in child protection. So I worked on uh, gang-related murders and uh, drugs. And, and I always used to say, you know, you can sell a bag of heroin once. You've had your profit. You've got to buy more heroin. With a child, you can sell that child repeatedly. It is a really, really lucrative business. And the authorities here are still turning away whenever they can because it's easier not to pull the plaster off. But we have to make sure that we don't allow that to happen. And I think in the UK, the big game changer in relation to awareness was the drama that I worked on for four years, Three Girls. And that hit a nerve in this country. And now the cat's out of the bag. Um, I think survivors and victims know they are not alone. Some of the shame surrounding this subject in the UK I think has gone, particularly with young women. I don't think that's necessarily still the case with young men, but we are going in the right direction. It is just far too slow. Um, but I guess we have to just keep banging that drum. So a common theme then from all of you is that the people in power, some of them are perpetrators, some of them are complicit if they hold the reins of the media, of law enforcement, of the justice system, what hope is there? I'll start with Annika. Yes, and it looks like my image is frozen. I'm not sure if you can see me, but... Yeah, you're uh, fine. You're fine. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I actually am very hopeful because I come from uh, not being able to speak about anything at all um, about my own story, including to therapists um, in the 80s, and it, uh, you know, it took me 10 years really to find a therapist who would who was open to even hear uh, the kinds of things that I was um, 
that you know the flashbacks and the memories that I was getting. So um, I, I've in, in steadily been incredibly impressed with how much uh, people are able to hear. And um, when I first, when my story first went um, went went viral in 2016, I noticed that there was still a bit of a sensational touch to it. And of course, when you have these extreme abuses, and um, it is very difficult to hold it, it is very difficult. I understand that it is hard to hear. Um, um, you know, you don't want to visualize a child being abused, for for example. It, it is um, emotionally very upsetting on top of that with these kinds of stories. It also may have you question the entire power structure. You know, your entire worldview may be endangered when you really accept that these things are true. So I really do understand the uh, reticence of people to really let that in. And I can only say that I'm just super impressed um, by the increasing um, ability of people willingness to to really hear it and to really get all the aspects of it and to stay away from the sensationalism and really be 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 willing to change their worldview and be willing to even look at themselves because ultimately this taps into your own trauma as well you know if you have issues with um, authority figures you know or if you want to be an authority or whatever that it it's going to affect something you know this our stories so yeah i feel um very hopeful let's put it that way and of course what that means in terms of change is um questionable but everything is coming out right now you know we do see this uh this incredible explosion really of truth um, coming to the surface and i do feel that this particular element is the key that will turn everything around that is to say the pedophilia in the halls of power thank you so maggie so if the people in power are perpetrators or enablers or just you know perpetuating this system what hope do we have i think it is quite a bleak picture i don't think i'm as optimistic as you annika um at the foundation for instance we're often approached by current victims who are having the door slammed in their faces today um, we will take that case and they're all over the country to the police force involved um, but very often that police force will still not investigate so we'll go higher up the chain i really feel that um i always call it willful blindness because it, or you know you don't lift the carpet and you don't see what's underneath because you know what's underneath i think in the uk anyway that if we were to see at least one chief constable senior police officer in a criminal court of law charged with gross misconduct or criminal you know malfeasance in a public office um, and prosecuted for that failure of his duty, I believe we would see radical changes overnight because I don't believe that everybody uh, in high places is necessarily involved in the abuse. I think that it's far easier just to turn away from it and not get involved. And the cases that I've you know, fought and exposed, that the Augusta case from 2005, 
Rochdale from 2010. If we knew today that if, if a chief constable today knew that if they ignored or turned away from a current case, that in five years' time they could be in front of a court, we could lose the pension, they could lose the future. Um, they would think very differently today and they would make different decisions. So for me, I believe that that would radically change the, um, the, the, the landscape overnight. And I really do feel until we get to that point, um, it's going to be a constant daily struggle for every victim to be heard if a person in power decides that they don't want to hear what they've got to say. That's where we come in because they are not alone. We know how to get through the system up to a point and we will not go away. But it's still every case is still um, a struggle. But I think accountability, legal accountability, personal responsibility is one of the answers that, that um, will, will go some way to improving the situation anyway. Thank you, Maggie. What do you think, Gloria, co confronted with the system that is presently in place? What hope is there and what, what can we do to change it? Well, it's interesting and I'm not normally um, a fence sitter, but I agree with both what Maggie and Annika said and I do see some hope, so I'll address that first. 20 years ago, there were no discussions. There were no forums like this. There were not a lot of charities that existed, none that I can think of in New Zealand anyway. Um, so... Uh, to me, people are coming forward more and more. Um, and so I see that as hopeful and positive and giving permission to survivors. And I'm only talking about child sexual abuse, Maggie, because that's all I know. Um, but child sexual abuse survivors coming forward and feeling safe enough to do so. I think there's a groundswell of support uh, for that. And I... I'm grateful to see that happen. Does that mean that it's where it should be? Not at all. So I think we have across society um, very powerful people who either are involved, leading or part of this. And uh, so therefore that's where it gets stopped and blocked. However, we also have to take into account uh, the Davo effect, and I've written about this in the guide, um, the book for survivors, and it's simply this. Davo is D for deny, A for attack, R for reverse, V for victim, O for offender. And what happens is, as a survivor, you come forward, you are then denied the opportunity to go further with your disclosure a, you are then attacked, as in your credibility, or, oh, do you think, you know, you've had a hard time recently. Do you really think that happened? Or, you know, your mind can play tricks. R for reverse, so they very cleverly, and I'm including police and government in this impact, um, they very cleverly do the R, which is reverse the order. See how clever it is? Then the victim becomes the offender and the offender becomes the victim. And hey, presto, you've managed to shut down a survivor who took, Annika will agree, years and years to find the courage to even think about sharing their story, let alone speaking it. Exactly. So that, that's what, as survivors, we are up against. And that's what works to this day. And it's clever 
it's insidious and it's successful. So I possibly gave you a bit of a conflicted answer, Sean, but that's to the best of my ability. <laughs> oh, thank you, Gloria. So, yeah. you know, all three of you are spiritual warriors as well as activists, and you could see the strength in all three of you. But psychologically, is this a double-edged sword? Because all of you have said that a lot of your time is spent helping survivors and you're absorbing their stories and their cases and that must be going down into your psyche how do you deal with all this dark energy that, that you're ingesting from from helping the people that have gone through these things annika um yeah thank you for asking that question actually um i, um, I have to say I um, spent uh, about two decades when, if you would have met me, you would have said, that's a very heavy uh, person, you know, and I had a very sort of dark, heavy energy about me myself, and I would have spoken slowly and everything, everything was just so hard. And um, I did come out of that. And so when I uh, speak with survivors, it is the most beautiful thing in the world because I'm actually, um, I'm the living hope. And... Um, I also uh, can see where they're at exactly. And so it's a very specialized, uh, if you will, uh, healing um, that, um, that, that gives both of it, that, is, that, that goes both ways, it gives me great joy. Uh, yes, it is very heavy, obviously. And um, I feel the heaviness, but it just makes me also happy. So this... Um, I, th I think that's what we can do, though, as as those who have um, gone through it and um, uh, got, got, gotten like, uh, you know, obviously I will continue healing for the rest of my life. I still get memories. I still get flashbacks and I have to deal with them. Um, but it does work very differently now. It's a lot more fluid. And that healing process is not really different from a spiritual process. Um, I uh, could say that psychologically I'm healed. You know, I, I, I have control of my life and myself uh, to, to a degree that, you know, I can manage my life very well. So, uh, and I can manage very difficult circumstances very well. So I'd say, yay, you know, very well done in terms of psychology. Uh, but it is not different from spiritual because the integration process really is a spiritual process where once, um, let's say, uh, feelings uh, that had, had to be suppressed um, because and, and separated from their original cause, let's say the psychological cause, which would have been a trauma. Once uh, those feelings are connected to their source and the integration happens, that there is a magic quality to that healing that, um, I, that, that has effects that are only spiritual, that you have more empathy for people, that you can become more humble, you have less of a need to prove yourself, um, you uh, feel more love for other people, and you even, you know, feel more understanding for, in my case, for, for perpetrators. So um, the understanding, the psychological understanding and the insights that I've received have always been worth, totally worth everything that I've done for me. So Yes, all of your accomplishments are inspirational. So, Maggie, do you feel drained sometimes psychologically just, you know, from pursuing this constantly? I, th I think, Annika, you're probably a, a lot further along the road than I am. Um, I've never been sexually abused, but the damage 
to me personally was so I felt that I'd been used. I felt that I'd been abused. As a police officer, I'd put my heart and soul into um, fighting for victims and believing that what I was doing was right and that the rug was pulled away. So I spent 10 years fighting for the girls who had been failed, that I had given my absolute word of honour to, that if they put their trust in me, that I would hold their hands through that system. And through no fault of my own, the decision was made from on high that that wouldn't happen. And yet they were the people who had asked me to do that. So I've kind of put my my feelings in a box and come out fighting in a way. Now, this year has been a really big, big deal, not only for those victims, but for me as well. Because in April, against all the odds, the new chief constable actually apologised to those victims and um, one of whom who had been put on the indictment as one of the band of paedophiles without her knowledge, um, without her ever being arrested or cautioned or and she'd spent eight months as a victim telling us what had happened. Um, they dropped her. That's why I left the police. But then subsequently, as a tactical option to get her evidence into the trial, they secretly put her on the indictment and tried to take her children away from her. They tagged a baby when he was in hospital. It, it was brutal. So to get that apology to, the, to that girl um, from the chief constable, saying that that job, which was portrayed in the UK as a fantastic success, he said that the way they dealt with it was incompetent. So for me, that has been some closure in, in a way. But building the foundation, um, because I was, I was going under with the pressure of helping so many victims. Now I've got a fantastic team. 65% um, of our team are survivors. So if, if you're looking for a volunteer role, Annika, or <laughs> 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 another one. Another one. <laughs> but, you know, I think because we've got a team now, I don't get drawn into the emotional toll of hearing every survivor's story. So I'm kind of trying to share all those voices without the emotional connection. But I've still got a lot of damage there to myself, which hopefully one day, I don't forgive them. I do not, I blame them. And I think that they are wicked and it's unforgivable what they have done to generations of children in this country, knowingly, deliberately, and pretended that they didn't. So I don't forgive them. And I don't know any other way to kind of, in a way, I, I guess in a way, I'm trying to prove a point that what they did was so wrong that I've more or less dedicated the last 12 years of my life to this subject. And, and I haven't been through what you two girls have been through. So how on earth you can um, move forward and have that spiritual forgiveness. I don't forgive them. Um, I want to see them apologize. I want to see remorse. I want to see them change what they're doing. And if they do that, that's the first step. But when they justify and pretend it's not happening anymore, and I know it is, they don't deserve my forgiveness and they don't deserve uh, the forgiveness of the victims because they are still letting down victims today. And they could save all those new children from going through what 
you know previous generations have gone through so that might sound a bit um harsh but that that is how i feel you know i do still feel that but that drives me on really sean um it drives me it's your mission and you're full of passion for it and we applaud you and, and salute you yeah. and and uh, gloria so effectively you are helping people overcome their demons with the work you do with the survivors and battling demons must get tiresome yeah look i it's an interesting one and and i just want to touch on forgiveness to me bless maggie you know bigger a person or lesser a person if you do forgive or if you can't it is what it is it's deeply personal and um what i found was i needed to forgive because it was impacting me and not anyone that had abused or hurt me or made money out of me so the weight of it lifted when i chose to do that that doesn't make me right or wrong it just felt um more peaceful and and sat with me more deeply I've been able to move on and I feel a little bit like (laughs) I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Schindler's List but in there there's a line at the end where Liam Neeson who we all love says I could have done more I could have saved more why couldn't I have saved more and I guess that's my purpose in life I um I'm trying to grow the channel and grow the charity to get more survivors feeling that they're heard and supported. Um, That doesn't mean they have to speak out. It could be a myriad of ways they deal with their trauma. But I guess I just want to pick up all the survivors on the, the way and leave no one behind. So my purpose in life is to do that. I'm now able to do it and it drives me and and I feel very purposeful, Sean, and I feel like that because it's I've found my purpose in life, which is to help others through shining light on this. And so it doesn't tend to bring me down so much anymore. Um, Sometimes I'll get triggered, but I've learned enough, I think, now and done so much healing over decades uh, that I feel safe and I feel um, very honoured, actually, to be able to do this work. I feel very humbled and moved by the survivors. So I guess that's me. That's great. Yeah. Thank you very much. We're down to the last 15 minutes. I'm just going to tell the viewers, if they've got any questions, please put them in the question box or in the chat. And we'll start out with a question from Sure. Z- can I just Ziva. say one? Can I just say one thing before yeah. you take a question? Just that the, the motto for the foundation is transforming pain into power. And and I kind of think that's all what we're all doing in a way. And um, I always say pain doesn't just come from, from abuse, but what you do with that pain, it, it helps you recovery, I think, but it can be a long, a long journey. Sorry. Definitely a long journey. And so many people are not, equipped to have the psychological tools to deal with it so what i've seen over and over again is just that they fall back on drugs which leads to criminality and sadly suicide uh, death mental illness and all the other things because no one in society helps them the, the problems are just compounded when they put in prison and, and tra- re-traumatized all the more and the drug they go for is heroin because that takes them the most out of it and 
that often ends you know their lives prematurely so okay so the, the first question from a viewer is ziva thank you ziva 20 to 30 years ago victims were being labeled with false memory syndrome in your experiences is this still happening in the therapeutic world so i'll start with annika um, yes, that, uh, that, that, that the, the false memory syndrome, um, you know, when um, Gloria mentioned uh, DARVO earlier, that was Dr. Jennifer Freed came up with that term. Her parents, um, she um, accused, as an adult, accused her father of sexually abusing her as a child. And that uh, those parents uh, created the false memory movement the Freeds, um, and uh, the false memory syndrome was uh, basically um, a, a doctor, uh, a clinical, uh, she was not a clinical psychologist, uh, Elizabeth uh, Loftus, Elizabeth Loftus, and that is now being taken apart. If you, uh, you'll find articles now about the uh, false memory syndrome and the false memory movement that you can actually see that this was based on a very no, flimsy to no science at all no experiences no experiential uh, um, tests were done with survivors at all and um, a, a group of 25 were uh, whispered false memories into their ears by their older siblings um, of being lost in the mall it's called the lost in the mall study but nevertheless, that book became a bestseller, and that um, that syndrome has become that that doctor has made huge um, a career, a huge career defending um, uh, the likes of Harvey Weinstein, um, even Ted Bundy, believe it or not, uh, to basically uh, discredit survivors. Um, that has been a really good move on the part of uh, the those who want to rule and have the resources and spend them in order to attack uh, the survivors. Uh, I have had uh, psychologists who were clearly influenced by this because this the the, the, the psychology itself as a field is infiltrated, and uh, there's even if you go on a satanic website you can find um, a false memory syndrome um, part where they actually have a fund to help parents that are being uh, accused of um, sexually abusing and sat uh, satanically abusing their children. So you see it's an organized group and um, some uh, a lot of money behind it, a lot of power behind it. But that movement um, is, it's you know, the motive of it is very clear. You know, when you think of motive, when survivors come out, what is their motive, you know? What, what do we get mocked for? That I want attention. Oh, well, yeah. If I wanted attention, I could have just taken my clothes off when I was 20, you know. I'm 60 years old. I'm talking about this. I'm uh, I'm getting attacked a lot. I'm, I'm putting my life at risk. So uh, there's nothing to be gained here for me other than just my commitment for truth. So um, when people uh, attack survivors, obviously their motive could be pretty... It's pretty easy to see. You just have to like be willing to look at it. <laughs> Thank you, Maggie. What do you think about tactics to dismiss survivors? I mean, that that really is what the thread that went through the Rochdale case. You know, the the, the girl Amber, who was Amber in the drama. That was her name. You know, she was a key witness. She she wrote all the names, all the numbers, all the 
um, the, the, the car registration. She took me to all the addresses where this happened. But then um, the authorities decided, uh, for whatever reason, I never agreed with it, that her account conflicted in minor details with another victim's account. So they couldn't take both stories forward. So they dropped one girl and built a case around the other. But in order to get her evidence into court, they had to completely demonize that victim and destroy her. So it might not be false memory syndrome, but subsequently they said in order to get that evidence into court as a tactical option, they would completely destroy that girl. So I think whether it's accusing somebody, a victim of having a false memory, whether it's um, judging a victim for making a lifestyle choice, or whether it's uh, demonizing them to fit a jigsaw puzzle, which is being created, I think it's equally um, horrific and, and life-destroying for that victim because being, being believed is critical. Being supported is critical. Whether or not that leads to a, a prosecution is a different matter. But I think if a victim is judged, is dismissed, is um, blamed, the damage that that does, often I say, is, is as bad as the abuse itself. Because that the people who should be supporting you as a victim have left you in a place where you've got nowhere else to turn for the rest of your life, really. And then you are even more vulnerable to the abusers who know you are alone. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it certainly did from your own real world experience. Thank you. And Gloria, have they used these tactics on you? What, what do you think of them? Oh, look, they're very, uh, they're very successful, which is what we talked about earlier. Uh, Darbo technique and false memory syndrome, I believe, now has been taken down as a society. It's no longer relevant, and I think that happened back in the 90s. Um, but the impact it has is to re-trigger, as, as both Annika and uh, Maggie have alluded to, re-trigger the survivor so that you start to second-guess, you start to doubt your own sanity, you start to feel completely re-traumatised again. And so what then happens is you're then less likely or less confident to take your story further or forward. So, yeah, it's powerful. And I think, um, Maggie, what you, or Annika, what you talked about regarding the motive, yeah, it's really clear. What's my agenda? Shut that down. Shut that down once and for all. So this is why people like us are doing what we're doing. And to all survivors, fabulous survivors out there watching, you know, you're believed. We see you, we hear you, we believe you. Thank you, Gloria. All right, yeah. next question is from Jake Forder. Do these paedophiles target a particular demographic, Annika? Um, well, if you're talking about the paedophiles in the power system, then and you have basically what is an exclusive club. Um, the, the somebody mentioned uh, the Masons, uh, so so there are secret clubs involved in those um, you know selections, let's say, and. Um, 
pedophilia is a system of blackmail, really, in that club, so that no one um, who gets to the top, top is really untainted, either by pedophilia or by knowing about it, and um, creating materials on these people, which I was used for as a young child, um, basically um, having to make the men feel comfortable about their first time with a young child while these men were being filmed, while we were being filmed and photographed, that was to be used against them to basically keep them in the in the system, keep them in that in that exclusive club. And of course, it's not just anyone that will go ahead and do that. It's someone who's already uh, given up their integrity m many times over by the time they are face to face with a young child. Um, so. Uh, children that are targeted are often, um, in my case, they came from, from often from poor families, from uh, incestuous families, and pimps for the network would infiltrate those families. Um, the Dutroux case was uh, later on where one of the pimps started uh, kidnapping children. That became a very big case in Europe, um, if you'd like to look that up, D-U-T-R-O-U-X. And... Um, the uh, generally the a lot of the children in in this network in this global network are born into a satanic family and um, working with so many survivors most survivors come from families that are in like say a small branch of the satanic network in a small town and then use their children to trade up and basically the, the children are then given to people of power and that's how the families get whatever the, it is that they benefit um, however they benefit, whether it's protection from from their pedophilia or whether it is uh, they get power. Wow. I hope that answers your question. It certainly did. Uh, Maggie, the demographic that is targeted? I think what, what I've seen in, in my um, experience is a pedophile spots vulnerability. Um, so in the grooming gangs, there were predominantly children from very difficult backgrounds, not necessarily in care, but where the family had, maybe it was a one-parent family, maybe mum had had a nervous breakdown, maybe uh, was an adult, and the children in many ways were fending for themselves. So the, the child is vulnerable to start with. So for me, that, that was what made it even worse when the police and the authorities, including social services, um, stepped back and judged the child because that child had nobody fighting their corner. And, and I remember the, the chief constable kind of dismissing me as this woman who beca you know, became too emotionally involved. Um, I'd been bereaved. Um, I you know, took my eye off the ball, shoot the messenger kind of thing. But the, the children have nobody to fight for them. So um, I, I think, you know, vulnerability is, is what I have seen. Um, and Annika, I'd be really interested to speak to you later because you, I'm listening to you talking. And in my head, I'm thinking of a case that we're dealing with and I'm learning so much. But you're going back many years. What you're talking about is what we're seeing at this moment in time. And it's frightening. Um, it, it really is frightening that nothing seems to really have changed. 
scary. Oh, the only problem is I work with younger survivors and I could say that the only um, difference seems to be the technology, really, how cell phones are used to access the, the victims also. So, yeah. Gloria, what are your thoughts on the demographic? Yeah, so what I see is all levels of society, all cultures, and it doesn't seem to um, to be specifically targeted. I'm, I'm talking generic child sexual abuse. I'm not talking SRA. I'm not talking pedophile gangs or trafficking. I'm talking generic child sexual abuse across all levels and within all um, societies and cultures and genders. And we're actually seeing an upsurge in terms of... Um, female sexual abusers as well. There hasn't uh, particularly been permission or acceptance that women do abuse, and I'm here to say they do. And it is quite a a well-kept secret, but it is being exposed more and more. So I expect to see a lot more of that come through as well. Thank you. All right, can all of you then just tell the viewers where they can find you and support you on the social, starting with Annika? Yes, sure. Uh, basically, my website is annikalucas.com. It's A-N-N-E-K-E-L-U-C-A-S.com. And there you'll find everything, uh, the links to my recent interviews, The, uh, of course, the links, all the different links to my book, which is also out on Kindle. Okay, Maggie. Um, yeah, I think the easiest way is the foundation website. So that's www.themaggieoliverfoundation.com with interviews and links to the book. Or Maggie Oliver UK is all my socials, Twitter or LinkedIn, Facebook page. Um, quite, it's easy to find. Okay, Gloria. Um, so look, I've just set up a charity, handingtheshameback.org. Don't you love it, guys? Handing the shame back every time we speak, every time the survivor speaks. And for the Bob Gloria Masters.com. All right. I just want to thank all of you. This has been such a powerful collaboration. And I'm sure everybody who's watching this has been impacted just by your passion, the strength of the testimonies. So wherever you are in the world watching this, please support our guests and check out their links and, and follow them and help them to your fullest extent. Huge thank you to all the viewers. And, yep, cheers, guys, wherever you are in the world. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you all next week. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Sean.